This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. everyone. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Let me let you behind the scenes a little bit in terms of what goes on in the production of this program. Now, there's a lot of different aspects of this show that I work pretty hard on. The selection of the bumper music, what audio sound bites we're going to play, what guests to interview, what I'm going to ask the guests about, the method of promotion for various topics, guests, and subjects that we explore on this show. All sorts of things. The personal stories that I choose to share, how I choose to share them, the sound effects that we play. A lot of effort that I try to put in to what goes on in the show, but I'll tell you, at least the way I do this show, and I have no idea how to do a talk show. There's really no manual you could buy for how to host a radio talk show. There's no school that you can go to. I mean, there are schools that uh, teach you about broadcasting. There are schools that teach you about journalism. There are schools that teach you about comedy. There are schools that teach you about marketing. But there's no school that teaches you everything that you need to know about being a radio talk show host. So I have no idea how to do it. What you hear on a nightly basis or a, or a morning basis is essentially just my best take on what I think goes into a talk show. And I'll tell you what I put by far every day. The most amount of time, effort, and attention into topic selection, right? Every day I choose three, six, nine, uh, three, six, nine, twelve, twelve at least subjects that I want to try and bring to your attention. And I try to mix and match, blend of serious, not so serious, between um, dramatic and comedic, between things that are uh, out of this world and things that everybody can relate to. But every once in a while, and I think we do this maybe about once a year, it's probably been at least a year since we did this, where we remember the words uh, of the great... Bob Grant, who would so often begin his programs or begin an hour of his program by saying something to something to the effect of what is on your mind this afternoon? As I was going through the list of subjects that I was considering beginning this show with, I looked at my list. I keep sort of a, a, a list of topics that I just add to. And then as we do it, I take it off. I cross it off. And there were four and a half pages, single-spaced, of possible topics that might be the first thing I bring to your attention. And a lot of really interesting stuff. I'm not going to spoil them all for you now because we may do some throughout the program, may do some tomorrow, may do some in the future. But I thought it might be fun if I just asked you the question, what do you want to talk about? Whatever is on your mind, 800-848-WABC, that is what we will discuss. I have a lot of other things on my mind, uh, so if nobody comes up with anything good, we'll stick with those. But for the time being, we are going to go in order of how long you've been holding with whatever 
you would like to comment on. Now, we do this to some extent. I don't love doing this because I feel like I put a lot of effort into topic selection. And why should I essentially, as Rush Limbaugh used to say, turn my career over to rank amateurs? But even Rush did that once a week. And we do this to an extent on Fridays when we do Ask Frank Anything. We allow people to ask questions about any subject. But what I am saying now is you don't have to ask a question. You can. You can make a comment. You can ask a question. Or you could say, Frank, I don't think you've paid enough attention to blank. Frank, I don't think you've paid enough attention to this. Frank, you spend too much time on that. Or whatever. It doesn't have to be a complaint. It is as broad and creative as you want to be. 800-848-WABC. If you're Steve from Manhattan and you want to call in and say, um, you know, go Buchanan, go Buchanan, go, now's the time. If you're uh, the Irishman slash Paul from the Bronx and you want to say Janine Pirro is a criminal of fraud, now's the time. 800-848-9222. If you're Richard in Parsippany and if you want to say something anti-Semitic, now's the time. If you're Joe in the Bronx and you want to say something anti-black, now's the time. Whatever is on your mind, now is the time in a topic-free, freestyle environment for the next, I don't know, 10, 12 minutes or however long this goes, to do it. 800-848-9222. Very simply, uh, good, bad, or indifferent, we're going to go to people in the order in which they called in and in which they've been holding. Let me begin with Joe in the Bronx. Hello there, Joe. Hello, Frank. I just wanted to talk about this UFO and we used to hang out in the lumberyard by the Cross Bronx in Franklin, like 1954, you know? So, uh, we this was, J- Joe, this uh, was a, this was a, an object that you saw in the sky in 1953, well, 1954? Yeah. Correct. Me and about, you know, a bunch of your friends from the Havilene uh, uh, Avenue. You know, we, we, we weren't drinking beer, and we would hang out and both and then go home and eat or whatever, you know. We were just 13, 14 years old. So what we were doing was watching, at that time, there was no jet planes. It was just pop planes, you know, like, uh, as, so we were watching the planes go over. There was silver, you know, silver lodges and wings and uh, four or five planes with the running lights and everything. And all of a sudden, behind one plane was a huge uh, green, I, I don't know if it was an oval or round, but it was a big green light. Silently, so we said to each other, "That's not a plane because it's not silver. You know, there's no wings, and we could see the few sides of the other planes." Which, what they were doing uh, that area near the Limestone Bridge, they were going to LaGuardia Airport. These planes to land. This thing had no wings. Uh, you know, no silver. Food. It was just a big round green light. It could be from you know. We just looked at one another. So we, you know, at that time. You know, we, you're watching the flying saucer movies, but it was si- silent. I don't remember any. You know, if this happened right now, I'm 81 years old, but this happened years ago, you know. And I've been in the Navy since then on aircraft carriers, and I dealt with planes coming in, you know, in Florida when I was on the Antietam at night. This was no plane. It was just big green object. I'm not sure if it was over round, but with the green light, it was not attached to an aircraft. It was just silent, and it was following. It was actually behind. But we must have watched four or five planes, and then, you know, after we seen this, we went home, you know. So 
evidently it could have been a UFO. I'm not saying it was, but it was just a clear day. I don't know what it was. Well, uh, that's pretty interesting. And uh, that was yeah. before the days when I guess everybody was carrying around a mobile phone and could take a photograph of it, right, Joe? Right. Yeah, right. We we just we used to hang out. We weren't. I remember right. We weren't drinking beer. We could have been smoking, you know, cigarettes. Then, because you know, when you were teen- teenager, you wouldn't do it in the house. You would smoke a cigarette with your friends, you know, outside. It was about five or ten of us. Mm-hmm. So I went to them and I said, "What do you think?" I don't know. What do you think? I said, "I don't know. It's a green light. What could it be?" And that's to this day, I don't know what it is. But did I you ever? Did probably, you ever talk after uh, that with the other people that you saw that with? Uh, not really. You, you know, with your friends, you know, they used to call me Snooky. Uh, you know, I was like the, the head of the neighborhood on Haviland Avenue. I remember because then we moved to Long Island in 1956. But this thing was green and white. And I said to my, I said to my friends when we were there, I said, well, we see planes, they're silver. You know, we see wings. And, and the planes, the prop planes were making noise just like jet planes do today. They were making and I said, well, what do you think? One guy said, well, the planes are going to Guaya. I said, I know that. But what is this thing following one of the planes? It was behind the plane. And it could have been a green light in the plane, but I don't think so. Because we, we could see all the lights on the planes. You know, they may have, I forgot, but they have like a red light for port side and a green light for starboard. That's the way this thing had one big green light. And I said, well, whatever it is, we don't know what it is. But then we did say to each other, it's probably a flying saucer, I mm. guess. Mm. And uh, then uh, another thing. Go ahead. Go ahead. Joshua, go ahead. You know, I, I was just thinking about one thing. It's religious. And you remember when Jesus was born, right? There was a light. Well, not personally, sky. but I've heard about yeah, it. Yeah. yeah. There was a light in the sky when he was born. It did not move. What I'm thinking, you said you uh, uh, people from another planet. Probably Jesus probably might have been an alien. That's what I'm thinking. Well, look, because- Joe, uh, Joe, the, obviously there's no way to know. Joe, thanks for the call. Um, when I was talking to Bill Burns the other day, he brought up what so many other people have brought up, which is that a lot of ancient myths, whether we're talking, uh, you know, whether we're talking Judaism, whether we're talking Christianity, whether we're talking uh, ancient pagan religions, whether we're talking, uh, you know, Islam, you name it. There's all sorts of religions that do seem to describe something resembling flying saucers or visitors from the sky. It's certainly possible. I think it's uh, I think it's very possible. But uh, no way to know, at least that I'm aware of. 800-848-9222. Carl is in New Jersey. Carl, what's on your mind? Hey, guys, W-E-B-C, Frankie, what's up? You Thank tell you me. Uh, let's, uh, let's, maybe you can comment on something for me. Okay. I have a problem with the, the, with the, with the phrase comfortable taking, you know? I heard that earlier on Dominic's show. Now, is that evil or criminal, a comfortable taking? Comfortable now, taking? Yeah. Like, is that is that actual evil or criminal? Like like church versus state, if you will. You, you got Maybe me. You, you got me. I don't know. No. Well, when you say, like, whether you're, you know, let's talk about adultery, okay? Okay. The comfortable taking. The coveting of ones is that I just need your opinion. Now, Sharia law versus martial law, you know what I mean. Right. Well, I, I mean, I, I, I still I'm not really understanding what what you're talking about. I'll be honest. 
like when somebody takes advantage, like comfortable taking, when somebody is actually doing a, is it criminal or is it evil? Well, I, I guess it depends on the circumstances and it depends on the, the laws of each state. Look, if you, uh, well, if that, you, that's what is, right? That's uh, what sorry, what is? Yeah. That's what what the is? Difference. The difference, the church versus the state, no? Yeah, I, I guess it. You know, there are certain things that are against uh, the laws of the church, like murder, that are also right. against the laws of the state. There are other things like uh, dishonoring your father and your mother that are against the laws of the church, but not necessarily the laws of the state. Carl, thank you for the call. I I could see that uh, us going down a, a dangerous path there. Not a dangerous path, but at least a boring one. Eight hundred eight four eight W A B C. Joseph in Parkchester, who formerly used to call as Joseph in the Bronx. Hello. Yeah, uh, well, promise not to be tedious, uh, but it's going to definitely be interesting. But to build on the comments of uh, a caller in the previous program, I believe his name was uh, Lamar. He actually pointed out the NAP commission, and uh, that was the famous NAP commission that pointed out the very police corruption. Yeah, the police corruption in uh, New York City. Well, uh, the follow-up to the NAP commission occurred about 20 years later with the Mullen commission. All right, and. Uh, basically, Lamar pointed out something very, uh, you know, very accurate. You know, the police, as they exist today, are essentially a publicly financed, taxpayer-funded, organized crime syndicate. Because the Mullen Con- uh, Commission pointed out uh, that again, you know, the NAP Commission uh, corruption that the NAP Commission pointed out is microscopic compared to the uh, uh, Mullen Commission's findings. That again. Criminality on the part of the police is systemic, widespread, and much more brutal and in your face than it was during the NAP commission. Uh, Joseph, That's still I got, the case today. Yeah, I completely disagree with you. I, I do not think uh, policing is is similar to organized crime in the least. I think it's the uh, and look, I have people I, uh, that are friends of mine that have been involved with organized crime. Uh, there's, it's not the same at all. Are there cops that have committed criminal activity? Absolutely. And you know what happens to them? They get punished. Uh, unfortunately, what you, cops are public servants. They exist to serve the public like a lot of other public servants do, teachers, firefighters, sanitation workers, and so forth. But when you're a police officer, a couple of things. One, just by putting your uniform on, you are at risk of some lunatic or some criminal wanting to kill you because of the job that you have. So the people that put on the uniform of the police every day, they have a degree of courage, which I think is above and beyond what the most of the rest of us in society do. That's number one. Number two, as you saw, as you heard, I hope, in my discussion with um, Keelan Darby on uh, Monday morning, you never know what kind of a circumstance you're going to be called to deal with as a cop. If someone's sleeping on the street, they call a cop to deal with that person. If someone is suicidal and armed, they call in a cop to deal with that person. If someone is in a car accident, they call a cop to help deal with that person. You, There are just limitless scenarios where the first people to respond are police officers, and they're in almost infinite number of scenarios that are unpredictable and dangerous. So I I know, Joseph, and I heard you on Dominic uh, a week or so ago call these people idiots. I find the exact opposite of that uh, to be true. 
if there are people in the police department that are corrupt or are doing the wrong thing, punish them. But in New York, anyway, there are many, many ways of giving proper oversight to the police. I don't think you need to demonize a whole department for that at all. 800-848-9222. Next up in the queue is Leo on the Upper West Side. Leo, what's on your mind? Frank, I have a, I have a just short comment to the previous, uh, but he was just talking with uh, about Lamar about this subject. Uh, after, uh, I believe that uh, the ratio, the problem with the police, and uh, let's put it this way: if there is in one basket of police, one upper bed. There is a, in the community every tenth upper bed. The ratio is just uh, is just not even. A lot of people thinks uh, you know that. Uh, do you know what I mean? I don't. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna switch subject. I wanted to ask you if you're into watch. A lot of people who smoke cigars are into good watch, collecting watch or wearing some uh, good watch. And so do you have some good watch, light watch? Uh, you know, or... my someone gave me a, a pocket watch recently that uh, I I don't have a chain for that I may I may end up wearing from time to time. But no, I don't collect watches. I collect um, lapel pins. I collect bobblehead dolls. And I collect uh, books, particularly the signed variety. That's about it. Shua is in Brooklyn. Hello, Shua. What's on your mind? Hey, how are you? you? Hear me? I hear you. I I was bothered how recently I just read up that the FDA wants to ban Juul, but they have no problem with all the bums smoking weed on the street. It, it just it's mind boggling. Well, I think there are some people in the FDA that would have a problem with uh, people smoking marijuana. But you're right. In terms of government policy, it is very hypocritical that we're moving towards legalization of recreational cannabis just about everywhere. And yet uh, now uh, e-cigs are becoming the new verboten vice. I think the reason the FDA is able to do that is is because it, they're still considered, the e-cigs are still considered tobacco products, and the FDA has pretty wide latitude in regulating uh, tobacco products. But uh, I, I don't blame you for being irked at the hypocrisy. In the meantime, if you are just tuning in, uh, we are doing the first, uh, I don't know, segment or two of this show in the tradition of the great Bob Grant, where he used to ask folks, What is on your mind this Afternoon. Obviously, this is the morning, not the afternoon, but I am still curious. What's on your mind? Frank is in Yonkers. Hello, Frank. Oh, yeah. Hi, hi Frank. Anyway, my question is this. How, when and how did we become such like an easy target, an easy, wimpy nation that these Democrats, these liberals, they just at will, at will just abuse us to no end, and we don't do anything about it? We don't do anything about it. I don't get it. I just can't get it. I lose sleep over it, Frank. Well, what about uh, voting for the other guy? Oh, oh what do you mean? I, 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 vote, I, vote, I vote conservative all the time. Yeah, well, I was so a Democrat, I was Republican, now I'm an independent. All right. But, well, so I, I think the yeah. if you don't like who's elected, Frank, that's really the key is to organize on behalf of folks that you do like. 
I think it's as simple as that. Uh, I think, you know, rather than, you know, uh, demonize the other side or say, uh, you know, people are uh, are bums or wimps or whatever, why not ask people who disagree with you politi- politically why they believe what they say they believe and then see how you can convince them why you're right and they're wrong. And in the process of those discussions, I think they may be able to, able to convince you of some things. And I think you might be able might be surprised at how many areas you agree upon. Charlie is in Hell's Kitchen. Hello, Charlie. Oh, Frank. So what I wanted to ask you about was what you think of the January 6th hearing. I, I can honestly, Robbie. you know, I can honestly say I, I haven't watched one minute of it. Uh, but what I've read in the, um, you know, based on the news coverage of it, I uh, look, I think that um, th- there's not really an interest in providing a balanced opportunity and a balanced search of the truth to me. It looks like an attempt by the political leadership in Congress to demonize President Trump and his supporters. It doesn't look to me as if they're interested in a holistic viewing and analysis of everything that happened on January 6th. But uh, I have to say, I haven't watched any of it, so uh, that I could be I could be wrong. Do you think they'll be effective in no. preventing no. Trump from running? No, again? I think they will do nothing. I think uh, I think they will have no effect whatsoever except to increase the uh, fundraising profile of some of the people who are heavily involved in the January 6th commission, because then they'll be able to send out fundraising pitches advertise to their base, advertising their participation in the commission. I think they will have no effect in uh, in terms of uh, hurting President Trump's chances at getting the nomination uh, again at all, uh, quite frankly. Eddie is in Bergen County. Hello, Eddie. Hi, Frank. Good morning. Good morning. Um, I wanted to just uh, comment about the, the primaries that are going on in the Republican, prim- in the Republican Party. Um, actually, a while back, I had asked you, I want to ask Frank anything, if you thought Mo Brooks would win the, the Senate uh, primary in Alabama. And this was way back. And it looked like he was the only candidate that was running, and he was for sure have it. And you told me these words. You Nothing's ever certain in politics. Right. And turns out last night that you were right. But what's really irking me about the whole thing is that Trump endorsed hundreds of candidates, but most of these candidates weren't in in competitive races. So now he's going around and he's touting a record of over 100 wins, and he has about 10 losses. But I haven't heard anyone who's said the number of, of his wins in competitive races, which I think is the correct uh, way to, to measure his, his success. Yeah, well, I think Politico does that. I get the Politico uh, Daybook newsletter in my email the other, uh, every day, and they were analyzing some of the candidates that Trump endorsed in the congressional elections in Georgia who lost, and they do that after every round of primaries. But in my view, Eddie, I, I don't think it really matters. I think voters are intelligent enough to say in Alabama or Georgia, okay, you know, I um, I like Donald Trump or I don't like Donald Trump, but I happen not to agree with the candidate that he endorsed here. And so I, I don't know that that's really a true reflection of Trump's popularity in a, any given contest. I mean, I think the fact in, in Pennsylvania, for instance, it's true, Dr. Ott, thank you, uh, Eddie, for the call. You got some background noise there. Dr. Oz, his chosen candidate did win, but I think a lot of people that like Trump probably voted for the other two leading candidates as well. I don't think that that means that uh, they don't like Trump all of a sudden in the Republican Party of Pennsylvania. 
I think that uh, it just means that in that particular race, they disagreed with Trump. You know, in spite of what a lot of people like to portray, Trump supporters are not members of a cult. They might agree with him on some issues, might disagree with him on others. So I, I don't think the fact that some of Trump's endorsed candidates don't win elections, I don't think that matters in the least. In the least, quite frankly. 800-848-WABC. Pete on Staten Island has been holding. Hello, Pete. Hey, Frank. Listen, um, something good to report on Staten Island. Uh, one of the gas stations on Victory Boulevard, they were giving out free gas. There were two women with signs, free gas, and they would give you tickets to some religious uh, gathering they were going to have. You're kidding. No wow. That's a religion no I want to join. Well, well, I ended up in the morning filling up my tank, the grim. So when my one of my friends called, I says, I, I got no place to put the gas, so I can't come and get it. But the thing is, it was very nice what they did. No questions asked, no asking for your phone, a phone number or email. It was just something that was done from the heart. And I just wanted to bring in attention to it, you know, especially with this gas crisis, you know, helping people out. So, Well, that's nice, Pete. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. 800-848-9222. We'll do a couple more of these, and then we'll move on to our regularly structured, regularly scheduled program. Although those of you that are on hold, I'll try and get to you anyway. Jeff is on Long Island. Hello, Jeff. Hey. Hey, how you doing, buddy? Good. Listen, I, I, I have a scenario which I think would definitely have Trump win, okay? Mm-hmm. I think Trump should bring Ron DeSantis with him as a running mate and go for the whole shabingo. What do you think? Well, I, I think, you know, Trump said that that's who he would pick when he was asked about uh, a running mate early on. These days, I hear from Trump world that he's not exactly pleased with Ron DeSantis. Um, and, um, you know, it may it may happen. You know, it looks like DeSantis is one of the five or six candidates that is refusing to rule out running against Trump in the primaries. Uh, but there's a long history, as you know, Jeff, of people that run against one another in the primaries teaming up for the general election. We saw that with Biden and Obama. Uh, we saw that with Biden and Kamala Harris. We saw that with JFK and Lyndon Johnson. We saw that with Ronald Reagan and George H.W. Uh, Bush. So I-, I could certainly see a scenario where Trump and DeSantis run against one another in a spirited primary contest, and then to sort of unite the party, Trump does ask DeSantis to join his uh, his ticket. Now, it's complicated for a few reasons. One is they both currently live in the same state, which is not permitted. So Trump would have to move. He could move to New York or New Jersey or somewhere else. So Trump would have to move in order for that to happen. The second is uh, they do sort of appeal to the same wing of the GOP. They do bring kind of a youth balance to the ticket because DeSantis is uh, over three decades younger than Trump. But I am hearing that Trump may prefer someone else that seems a little more deferential to him. I I could see him picking somebody like a Christy Nome, for instance. So who knows? Uh, But uh, certainly the, the betting markets as of yesterday show DeSantis as more of a favorite for the nomination at this point than Trump. That was the first time I think they they have shown that. But uh, who knows? Who knows? I think it would certainly be a competitive general election if it's Trump versus Biden again or if it's Trump versus Hillary again. I know Hillary says she's not running, but uh, I don't uh, I, I think if Biden opts not to run, 
then I could certainly see a scenario where uh, Hillary does change her mind and choose to run again. We'll see. All right. uh, We'll get into a whole bunch of other issues, including more of your phone calls throughout the course of the program. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. WABC. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano with you until 5 o'clock this morning. Uh, Matt Blaze is out today. He told me why he was off today, but I I don't recall. He had something to do. I think it might have involved uh, picking up his longtime companion from somewhere or something. I don't remember. And uh, Ryan, last minute, uh, called out uh, today as well. Uh, So we have Izzy and Avery sitting in for those gentlemen, and uh, Alex Barnard is here as well. So this morning, yesterday morning technically, as I was leaving, I'm, um, you know, exiting, talking to Sid Rosenberg for a few minutes. We're analyzing the state of the governor's race and the recent uh, Newsmax debate, and I'm leaving. And then who do I see coming in? And this is about 5.15, 5.20 in the morning, maybe 5.30. Who do I see coming in? Curtis Slewa. I said, what are you doing here? And uh, he said, I just got back, just got back from Rochester. I was up there for the debate. Now, Rochester is a ways away. I think it's about, it, I, I want to say it's a six-hour drive, maybe more, from uh, Midtown Manhattan. Might be more. But uh, he had just gotten back from the debate, and he had the Guardian Angels drive him uh, to Midtown Manhattan, to the radio station. I said, uh, all right, you want me to give you a ride? You want me to give you a ride home? He lives uptown. And uh, he said, no, it's okay. Um, uh, I'm going to hang out here for a bit. So, um, you know, I end up talking to Sid for a couple more minutes. And then he, I guess, thinks better of it and says, you know what? I actually will take that ride home if you don't mind. Let me just go and collect my things and uh, I'll, I'll, you know, take the ride. So we get in the car and Curtis is giving me his two cents on what it was like being there sitting next to Mayor Giuliani for this Newsmax debate, uh, what the supporters of all the candidates were saying, what the crowd was like, uh, his take on what was going to happen in the election. And then, you know, he had been listening to our show as he was driving back. So he was giving me his two cents on the things that we were doing on our show. We were talking a little bit about the radio uh, business. We were talking about the, the station, all sorts of things. Uh, just basically updating one another on everything that's happening radio-wise and politically. So then I get all the way uptown. I pull over, and uh, we're saying our goodbyes, and uh, he's looking around. He's collecting his things. You know, Curtis Curtis travels with a, a, a bunch of stuff. There are bags and bags of stuff. 
papers and newspapers and pens and all sorts of stuff, research. And he says, oh, no, where are my phones? Plural, phones. I said, oh, I don't know. I mean, you want me to call them? And he's looking around. My car is kind of a mess anyway. I had to clear out a whole big portion of my uh, my uh, front passenger seat in order to fit him in there because right now I barely have room for one person in my car. It's just a mess. I'm a little embarrassed by it. But uh, clean, you know, clean car is perpetually on my to-do list, and it never seems to crack the top echelon of priorities for my to-do list. So he's looking around. Can't find his phone. He said, I might have left it at the station. Don't tell me I left it at the station. So he said, can you call Justin? I said, I'll do you one better. I'll call Alex Barnard. So I call Alex Barnard, and I say, uh, are you still at the radio station? He says, yes. So then I said, well, you know, can you look and see if Curtis's phones are there? Curtis gives him the most likely spots that uh, they're likely to be. And he says, yes, we have them. So I said, all right, can you bring them downstairs? We're going to come back. So he brings them downstairs to the lobby area, gives them to the uh, fellow there. And then we drive all the way back to the radio station. Uh, Curtis runs in, gets his phones, and then we drive all the way back uptown. And now I can tell when Curtis is a little delirious, and that's when he has difficulty remembering things. He confuses Staten Island and Long Island. He confuses this and that. He was in the midst of trying to concoct a conspiracy theory uh, involving his theft of um, of my son's Mr. Met doll. And uh, that was the kind of mode that he was in. He, he was having a tough time kind of focusing on what I was saying. But uh, he, he gets his phones, both phones, two phones, and then we go all the way back uptown. And now... Uh, now it's substantially later than the time that I usually get home. I usually get home sometime between between 6 and 6.30, and I'll look after young Carmine if he needs to be fed, if he needs to be changed, whatever the case may be, so that my wife can try and sleep for a couple hours. So now I get I'm about an hour and 15 minutes, maybe an hour and 20 minutes home later than I generally get, and... Um, uh, I got the lowdown on everything that Curtis was up to in the debate. But I got to tell you, I went out of my way twice for Curtis yesterday morning, including going driving all the way uptown twice. So whatever he has in store for frank criticism this weekend, I don't want to hear it. Alex Barnard, do you have something you want to add? Yeah, well, so first of all, two things. You you think you, you went out of the way, obviously, but right. I was I was literally – Foot out the door, oh about to head home when you uh, gave me the call to say to ask, uh, can you look for Curtis's phones? Now, I wanted to ask you. should have you, said you were already gone. Yeah, well, I know I should have. But <clears throat> the thing I wanted to ask you was, uh, do you know what is the deal with Curtis keeping those bags of pickles that he has with I him? I don't, actually. I don't. I, I, I've, I meant to ask him about that. I don't. That is... Uh, that is interesting. It's no. something that's always puzzled me about it's the man. A good and I mean, he's a very he's a very confusing man in general. This anyway, is true. But, this is true. Um, I mean, does he eat them? I just I don't he, know what I it think is. He does. I think he does. But I don't know why who, he travels with. Who needs bags to eat that many pickles in You're one right. sitting? You're right. No, I I I can't answer that one. That is uh, that is a, a good question. But well, thank you for going all the way uh, out of your way as well when you were almost out the door. My pleasure. You know, it's, it's funny. <clears throat> 
so with with that in mind, when you are about to take a step towards freedom, essentially, the best thing to do is always to take that extra step towards freedom. Always, right? And I remember I was covering a trial one time, criminal trial, and deliberations had been going on for a while. And we're in the fifth or sixth day of deliberation. And then the lawyers were out the door. I was still in the courtroom for whatever reason or in the cafeteria. And then we get word that there's a note. Now, after five or six days of deliberation, any note could be an indication that there's a verdict in that trial. So we I, we all hustle back to the courtroom. Uh, the judge says, find Mr. White and Mr. So-and-so. We don't know where they are. Well, I think they went towards the train. She sends the marshals to the closest subway station to search for these lawyers. The marshals find the lawyers on the subway platform literally about to board the train. And one of the lawyers I spoke to the next day, he said, all I'm thinking is if I step onto this train and don't turn around, that means we're not getting a verdict today. And my client is unconvicted for one more day. And he, he... contemplated stepping on the train, but I guess curiosity got the better of him. He turned around, went back to the courthouse, and uh, we read the note. Sure enough, there was not a verdict that particular day. So when, whenever you're this close to freedom, a lot of times it pays to just take that extra step. Warner Wolf told me that. He said it's, it's like the military. When you're about to take leave, take leave, and don't, don't linger. Don't linger. Just go. He always said that. Stewart is in Forest Hills. Uh, Stewart, Curtis told me he ran into you outside of the uh, debate the other day. Well, I'm surprised he told you that. Yes, he was on the Giuliani side in front of CBS Studios. I was on the Lee Zeldin side. I came with my poster, and I spoke to Curtis. I shook hands. We kind of made up. I said, Curtis, you know, you have to apologize to me for being so nasty. He said, yes, yes, I do. We shook hands. And he actually he said to me, I'm going to talk to Frank. And I and I really didn't know if I would believe him or not. And then I said, look, you know, the two thousand dollars, Curtis, you know, he says, well, you got to speak to Frank Morano on that. And I said, look, Curtis, you have to understand God's going to give mercy on you, even though you did bad by me. You, you helped those cats. So the bottom line is, you know, God's going to have mercy on you. But we. We shook hands and made up. But the reason why I'm calling tonight, Frank, is Andrew Giuliani has his father, Rudy, as the centerpiece of his campaign to try to tar Lee Zeldin against um, Andrew Cuomo. I remember very clearly April, May, March 2020, the beginning of COVID, uh, uh, Rudy Giuliani was praising Andrew Cuomo's handling every single day on co- of his handling of COVID on his radio show. He said he's doing beautifully on COVID. I support him. He brought him on as a guest. He said, oh, how's your brother, Chris? We've been friends for so long. You and I, we all know that uh, Rudy voted for Andrew Cuomo for governor a good three times. How dare he hypocritically go after Lee Zeldin when he voted for Cuomo? Why is he lying about Lee Zeldin? 
Well, first of all, I, I uh, don't know that who Rudy voted for in those gubernatorial he elections. Did. His personal friends were Cuomo. Well, no, I, I, I mean, look, crazy. I know they're friendly, um, and I know that he voted for Mario Cuomo in 1994. Andrew with... Cuomo he voted for. Oh, okay, know well, that. I, I don't know that, but I'll take your word for it if, if you claim that that's what happened. Uh, but, uh, look, you know, I, I guess, um, you know, he's trying to do whatever he thinks he perceives to be helpful to his son. I remember when the mayor was very laudatory towards Cuomo at the early part of the pandemic. And I think he was absolutely wrong back then. But uh, he's been very consistent. Look, he's a longtime friend of the Cuomo's. And um, even after Andrew was, um, you know, was ousted, I had the mayor on this radio show and he said he thought that Andrew would have a second act and that uh, he thought that uh, Andrew was an intelligent guy and would do something else in public life. So, look, um, you know what? I think uh, a lot of people I think it's really just a reflection of advocating for his son. And I think and it's thanks hypocritical. for critical. It's hypocritical. All right, well, that's your that's your view, Stuart. Um, I think um, also Lee Zeldin's conduct in this campaign might have caused a lot of people to think of Lee in a different way than they had previously. I'll I'll say that's true in my case, honestly. But um, whatever. Well, may the best man or woman win, right? 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. Mario is in Manhattan. Hello, Mario. Yes, good morning, sir. I just want to say, uh, relating to the police department's in the whole country, as a matter of fact, that once someone calls the police department, from the time that call is received at their communication center until the responding officer goes out on that service call, that man that goes, that officer, is a public scribe, a modern-day scribe like they've had for centuries in other societies, that makes a record, and that record whatever is compiled in that is forever it's kept because that's the origin of what took place a birth a death what have you and it's remarkable that that has followed through from times gone by up until the present day and we take all that for granted when that police officer who is supposed to be a first responder a peace officer, a social worker. I mean, how many more things are they going to make these uh, people I agree. Do? I agree, Mario. You know, it's the only job where you could be delivering a baby one hour and then uh, disarming a terrorist yeah. the next day, uh, the next hour. It's really, I agree with you completely. Uh, I think that's, um, I, I, you said it really well there. Can't disagree. 800-848-9222. There is uh, somebody that is trying to strike down... A law that I think is totally unconstitutional in the state of New Jersey. I'll tell you what it is straight ahead. This is The Other Side of Midnight. We'll continue. WABC. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano, 77 WABC.
This is uh, Head Over Heels by Tears for Fears, a uh, musical selection by Izzy. Uh, We'll still try and uh, post all of the bumper music selections in our Facebook group uh, later this morning. If you want to know what kind of music we're playing, just join the Facebook group. On Facebook, just search Morano Radio Fans and Haters. That's M-O-R-A-N-O Radio Fans and Haters. Hey, I want to congratulate uh, Rita Cosby. I believe yesterday she was the recipient of her seventh Gracie Award. So congratulations to her and all the recipients of the uh, the Gracie Awards. I believe that uh, one of the other Gracie Award recipients was uh, Mary Walter, who is occasionally a fill-in for Brian Kilmeade. Brian Kilmeade, by, by the way, will join us at around 4.35, right after the $1,000 Minute. We'll go through some of the news of the day. And uh, we'll do the AC report, as we do each and every Thursday morning at 3.30, with Michael Chait, the president of the Greater Atlantic City Chamber of Commerce. Now, New Jersey's an interesting state. I like New Jersey. We have a lot of listeners in New Jersey. Our transmitter is actually located in New Jersey. New Jersey is one of these states that has something called a sore loser law. Do you know what a sore loser law is? We don't have that in New York. Some states have it. Some states don't. But what a sore loser law is, is it's essentially a law that prohibits the loser of a primary from running as an independent in the general election. So Joseph Abutel mounted an unsuccessful write-in campaign. Write-in. Name was not even on the ballot. Write-in campaign for the Colts Neck Township Committee in New Jersey. Colts Neck, New Jersey. Very ritzy area. Very lot of money over there. Colts Neck, New Jersey Township Committee in the June Republican Party. And now he wants to get on the ballot as an independent. He got the signatures followed the proper protocol to get on the ballot, I want to repeat, was not on the ballot for the primary. But the Monmouth County clerk, Christine Handler, finding clear evidence that Abutel had actively sought the Republican nomination, and there's an interesting article on this on NewJerseyGlobe.com by David Wildstein, she rejected Abutel's nominating petition. And it was filed before the polls closed on June 7th for the fall election. Uh, Ms. Hanlon, the county clerk, said Mr. Abutel is no longer able to utilize the petition process for general election ballot access. So he launched this write-in campaign to an incumbent last April, but he lost the GOP primary overwhelmingly. The woman that beat him, Sue Fitzpatrick, she got 980 votes and he got 179 write-in votes. He waged a full-scale campaign, spent $5,800 of his own money on direct mail, lawn signs, a campaign website, and a digital effort. And Fitzpatrick had filed a challenge to Abutel's candidacy. The law does not allow Abutel to run against me in the general election after he already lost the primary election. Now, it's true, the law does says, say that. The statute says that, quote, No petition for direct nomination shall nominate to any elective public office a candidate who unsuccessfully sought the nomination of a political party to that office in the primary election held in the same calendar year. And no unsuccessful primary candidate shall sign an acceptance of such a petition for direct nomination. But an attorney that's representing this fellow, uh, Mr. Abutel, disagreed. He claims 
And I'll be honest, I think I agree with him. The sore loser law does not apply to write-in candidates, only candidates whose name appeared on the ballot. He says the courts need to follow its own guidelines that election laws are, quote, to be liberally construed. I have to tell you, and I don't know your view of this, but give me a call, 1-800-848-WABC. That's 1-800-848-9222. I am totally against these sore loser laws wherever they exist. And, and, you know, we've seen time and again examples of people losing a Democrat or Republican primary and then winning the general election. We saw this with uh, Joe Lieberman in Connecticut, lost the Democratic primary to Ned Lamont, won in the general election as uh, as a third-party candidate. We saw this with Lisa Murkowski in Alaska, lost the Republican primary, and then won as a write-in candidate in the general election. We saw it in New York City. John Lindsay lost the Republican primary in 1969 to John Markey and then won in the general election as a third-party candidate. We see this time and again. Why should the voters in the general election be denied the opportunity to vote for someone just because they lost their own party's nomination? I hate these sore loser laws, so you know where I'm coming from. That's my bias. But if you're going to have these sore loser laws, as they do in New Jersey, should it really apply to a candidate whose name isn't even on the ballot? Can you lose an election where your name's not on the ballot? I mean, in theory, and I write in people all the time. I write in people almost every year. In theory, you could write in anybody, right? So I get that this guy was actively campaigning. He spent some of his own money. He had a website. I get it. But you could write in Frank Moreno for uh, Colts Neck Township Committee in a primary. Should I then be ineligible to run in the general election as an independent? I don't think so. I don't think so. I hope this guy wins this lawsuit, and I hope uh, that this is there's a movement towards challenging these sore loser laws all over the country, wherever they exist. What do you think? 800-848-WABC. That's uh, 800-848-9222. There's going to be a court hearing on this on July 21st, uh, so we'll see what the judge ultimately ultimately rules on this. But judges have viewed the sore loser law in New Jersey, as fungible in the past, after Middlesex County Democrats declined to support Assemblywoman Arlene Frischer in Woodbridge for re-election, she ran off the line and came within 735 votes of winning. Republicans threw Frischer a lifeline when their candidate dropped out of the race. Frischer announced that she was switching parties and would seek re-election as a Republican. Democrats went to court arguing that Frischer was violating the state's sore loser law designed to prevent candidates defeated in primaries from running as independents. A judge ruled that Frischer was eligible to become a replacement candidate for the winner of the Republican primary. And in the general election, Vass defeated Frischer uh, by, you know, uh, Vass was the person that ran against her as a Democrat by 3,197 votes. So they ruled there is some flexibility with the sore loser law. Where do you come down on it? 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. Let me begin with Joseph in central New Jersey. Hello, Joseph. 
Hi, Frank. This is Joe in yeah, Central Jersey. Hey, Frank, on this um, sore loser law, uh, initially when you start talking about it, I thought that the Monmouth County Clerk's Office, when if they go to court, they will lose the case because I do not think it applies to a write-in. It has to be somebody who was actually on the ballot. Um, because years ago, there, there was a prior uh, situation where you could you could get on the ballot as an independent even if you lost a Democratic or a Republican primary. But one thing threw me, Frank, that's, that's confusing me just a bit. You, you went on to mention that he spent 5000 some dollars, I right. believe. That's what's being reported by the New Jersey Globe. Yeah. Yeah, the thing on that, if I'm correct, and, and I'll give you just a little uh, of my background. I'm a retired newspaper reporter, and I happen to cover Monmouth County oh. election offices. Um, the thing that's throwing me just a bit, and I'm a little bit out of the loop because I've been retired for a few years now, maybe about four or five years, that it, New Jersey has uh, the New Jersey Election Commission where you have to file and say, I think 5000 is the threshold that you could run a campaign and not have to file reports if you don't hit a certain number, and I think it's $5,000. So what I'm saying is that Initially, I thought that the Monmouth County Clerk's Office would be in the wrong on this because he wasn't a ballot name. He was a write-in. However, if you hit a certain point, you have to report to the election commission. Yeah, well, you're right. That That's the only reason I know how much he spent and what he spent it on, because he did uh, make a filing with the New Jersey Election Law Enforcement Commission. Yeah, and see, that's what I'm wondering if that... Um, you know, takes away. Uh, in other words, if he if he spent only four thousand nine hundred ninety eight dollars or something and didn't have to report it, technically he might be not be considered an official candidate. You see what I'm saying? I do, I do. So, what's yeah. your prediction here? You 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 were leaning one direction. Now it sounds like you're leaning another. Well, this, the thing is, like again, it's it's the technicality of the thing. Um, if, had you not mentioned the money, and he and he just said, "Hey, write me in." I said, oh, she's going to lose this in court. Uh But the fact that it was a little more formal, you think, maybe he ends up losing. Yeah, that's just it. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Thanks for listening, Joe. Thanks for your contribution and your expertise. Let me squeeze in at least one more call here before we run out of time. Mordecai, also in central New Jersey. Hello. That's me. How you doing? I'm good. Got about a minute here, Mordecai. It's all yours. Well, I'm not going to take that long, but I can tell you I'm not uh, – I'm also in – yeah, like I'm in uh, central New Jersey about 20 minutes from the Newark airport just like the uh, last guy, but I'm no expert. I figure, though, if, you know, he spent the money and um, he's in it to win it, even if he doesn't win and he's just doing it for principle, why not, you know? Let him do it. I fig- I can guarantee you that if he was uh, if he was running for the other side of the aisle, they'd treat him a lot differently. They'd squeeze him in no problem. Very interesting, Mordecai. Well, I mean, keep in mind, the Democrats want him on the ballot because presumably that means, uh, first of all, Colts Neck is such a Republican area anyway that I think the oh, yeah. Republicans going to win no matter what. They but they would pro. want yeah. a Republican on the ballot as an independent because that would, in theory, siphon off votes from the Republican. Mordecai, thanks for the call. Hey, how old is too old to be a father? We'll get into it. Help control the pet population. Get your dog or cat spayed or neutered. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They run in a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano.
Good morning, everyone. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Milano. So I, um, I was very interested when Larry King had a child later in life, right? I believe Larry King was, uh, I want to say he was 70 or 72 uh, when he had a child later in life, right? I believe he was, um, let's see, uh, you know, I, I'm going to ch- I'm going to check on the age. I think he was 70 or 72. And he lived to see, you know, the child, I think, become uh, a at least a late teenager. Okay, no, he was 66. So Larry King had a child when he was 66. George Lucas, obviously one of the wealthiest men in the world, he became a father at 69. James Doohan, who played Scotty on Star Trek, great actor and seems like a great guy, uh, fought in the Canadian Army during World War II, stormed the beach at Normandy. He had a child at 80. Uh, Clint Eastwood had his youngest child, Morgan, when he was 66. Charlie Chaplin, silent film star, 73, when his fourth wife, who was 36 years younger than him, gave birth to Christopher James. And there's a lot of examples of celebrities who have had children late in life. Hugh Hefner, one of the people that I look up to and admire. He was 65 when he had last, when his last child. So... I've spent a lot of time thinking about how old is too old to be a father or a parent. And I remember, you know, when when I was working with Curtis and Kubi years ago, Curtis's sister, Alita, was on the front page of the New York Daily News as being the oldest woman ever to have twins. And this was, I want to say, 2005. She was 57 at that time. And the record was subsequently broken, but she was 57 at the time. And this was all anyone in the newsroom was talking about, how Curtis's sister was going to make history by being the oldest woman to have twins. And, you know, she was in great health and is in great health. Now, I think, see, it was 2005. What year is it now? 2022, 17 years later. So the the twins are 17. That means she is 74. And you know, she'll see them definitely be into their 20s, maybe even their their 30s, because she's in great, great shape, great, looks great, and is physically very strong. She's in great shape. But John Gambling said to me when he's holding the Daily News and sees Alita on the front page of the Daily News, he turns to me and says, I think this is, he doesn't say what he's talking about. He just holds the paper and says, I think this is really wrong. And then, you know, we had a discussion about it on air. Curtis, Ron, John, and uh, George Weber, who was with us at the time, Warner Wolf, who was with us at the time. And we had a whole discussion about becoming a parent later in life. Now, uh, my wife and I got started uh, relatively late in life. Not super late, but relatively late in life. And I would love to have a lot of children. Now, I look at my bank account now and see the dollar and 63 cents that's in there. And I can't imagine how I'm going to find the way to pay for, you know, three, two, two more children, three more children, whatever the case may be. But 
I've often thought to myself, well, how old is too old to sire a child? And then I see this article published in The Sun. And it's out of Argentina, but I feel like this applies universally, maybe even around, around, the, around the world. A doctor who is the father of a baby boy at 83 years old says he lives each day knowing he won't get to see his son grow up. Now, he's a, a nutrition expert as well, Alberto Cormillo, Cormillo, Alberto Cormillo says he does he does what he can now to give the the tot as many memories as possible his wife Estefania Pasquini is 35 years old and she became pregnant with the baby after fertility treatment so this was a plan this was not a happy accident or let's try let's try not to use protection and see what happens this was a plan they wanted to have a baby with him at 83 and and she at uh, 35. They wanted to do this. Al D'Amato uh, sired, uh, sired a child at uh, the age of 70, I believe. Despite Cormillo's age, he says he's actively involved in raising his son. He said, I'm aware that life is not infinite. That little guy's here, and I'm going to accompany him until a certain moment. Until that happens, I plan to enjoy every day to the fullest and make plans that are more short-term, which means I enjoy every day as fully as I can. He tries to make their time together as enjoyable as possible and leave his son with memories he can hold on to for a lifetime. Now, I look at the pictures, and I think I just linked to this on my Facebook page if you want to read the article, facebook.com slash Fan. And you could tell this father really loves this little boy. The little boy looks like he's having a great time uh, with the with with his his dad, and it looks like they get along really well. But if you think about the future, how long is this child going to have his father? Until he's ten? Until he's twelve? Until he's fifteen? Probably unlikely that it's going to be, be much beyond that. And is it unfair to some extent? To willingly bring a child into the world when you know you're not going to be around, you're not going to be alive to take care of it. I don't mean to call it an it, but to take care of him or her. I really wrestle with this. I'm very conflicted about this. I Look, people are living longer. Um... But the fact of the matter is, people all really do need their fathers. Now, I could get hit by a truck, God forbid, on my way home, fall asleep while driving, get hit by a truck, God forbid, and die on my way home today. And that, that would make my son fatherless at seven months old. So circumstances happen. But I think it's at least somewhat likely I'll be around for longer than uh, Alberto Cormillo will be. So... What this fella does, and I like this idea, and I'm thinking about doing something like this for for my son, because as I said, the future is nothing if not uncertain. He constantly leaves audio messages for his son to discover in the future. So he said that means that although he still really is a baby, he has a phone number with WhatsApp in which 
I record audio and send him videos. You know, that's interesting. We have a, we have an email address for my son, and uh, sometimes my wife, sometimes my stepmother, sometimes his aunts and uncles, they'll send him emails for him to read in the future. And what this father, this 83-year-old father says, I don't over-dramatize things. I just record the reality of life. Now, this fella already has two adult sons and three granddaughters. His first wife, Monica, died in 2017. He, Cormio, was diagnosed with colon cancer in 2012, but all traces of the tumor were removed by surgery. The couple have told how they have hired a private Chinese language tutor for their son, now nine months old. So, I mean, I guess they have money. I'm sure that always makes things easier. They began planning for the child's future as soon as they knew the baby was on the way. He said he wanted his son to learn Chinese because it was the language of the future. So as well as learning Chinese, he's teaching the new baby to play the organ, and he posted a video of himself with the youngster at the keyboard. He added that he was constantly thinking how he can best prepare his son for the future while he's still around. Um, the kid doesn't even know how to crawl yet, and his father's 83. Um, his father is not going to be around to teach him how to throw a curveball when he's 13. He's not going to be around to teach him how to shave. He's not going to be around to um, uh, pick him up when uh, he's got too much to drink, when he's had too much to drink when he's 18 years old and can't drive himself home. And I wonder, is it selfish for a parent to do this? What do you think? 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. And what age is the cutoff? Look, obviously everybody's different because it does depend on your physical health and it depends on your finances, quite frankly. If you're um, if you're super wealthy at 75 and you can afford to hire sitters and nannies and you can afford to leave enough money for your uh, wife and child behind so that they're not going to starve when you die, then that's one thing. If you're uh, if you if you're a very old 65 and you're an impoverished 65, that's quite another. I'd also be curious to hear if there's any of you out there who have had uh, stories of having a child late in life and how that's how that's affected you and how that's worked out for you, whether you're the parent, whether you're the spouse or whether you're the child of someone that had a child late in life. 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. I have one friend, and she has several older siblings, much older, at least 10 to 12 years older, and she came as sort of a surprise. And fortunately, both of her parents are are still around, and they're doing great, and they have a great relationship, and all of their children have made it to adulthood. I had another friend, Bill, who was still a bachelor at 50. Still a bachelor at 50. And he did not have his first child until he was, I think, about 53, 54. And he told me that he was reluctant to have a child because he didn't know if he was going to be around for that child. And he said to me when we had this conversation, and now his daughter is doing great. She's in her 20s. He said, fortunately, I have lived and I've been able to be there for my daughter. But it really becomes much more of a crapshoot later in life. 
What do you think? How old is too old to be a parent? 800-848-9222. And maybe no age is too old. And uh, if you have any interesting stories of being a parent at an older age, 800-848-WABC. Meantime, Paul is in Astoria. Hello there, Paul. Hi, good morning, Frank. How are you? I'm doing just fine. Thanks for asking. Great, great. Um, this was, I was holding on because for the hour of Ask Frank Anything, but um, to diverge from politics and all the other stuff that's going on in the news, I really got to give you a lot of credit because in the past recommendations, talking about food, Italian food, you've given me great recommendations like Williamsburg Pizza, which I've had, which I'm just hooked on now. Oh, great. And Toros. Great. So, you know, so much seriousness in this world and stuff like that. Could we have like more shows where we could talk about the best Italian food in the city? And what would you recommend at this point? I mean, you have like great taste and really happy with the suggestions you've made in the past. Well, are you talking about in all five boroughs or in one specific borough? Uh, maybe just Manhattan. Okay. Um, and, and Brooklyn. Uh, well, look, in Brooklyn, I don't think there's a restaurant that's better, uh, Italian or not, but especially for Italian food, than Michael's of Brooklyn. Have you been to Michael's of Brooklyn? No, I haven't. Uh, basically, in Brooklyn, I've been to Ellen Beast Bologna Gardens. Well, is, I mean, it? I mean that's great, and it, but it's you know it's a it's a pizza it's you know it's primarily a pizza shop. They do do a chef's table option, which has broader food options. G- do yourself a favor and um, check out Michaels of Brooklyn Avenue R and Nostrand Avenue. Now that Forlini's is closed, that is the closest place to stepping into a time warp. It's amazing. It's an amazing, oh, it's an amazing spot. Avenue R and Nostrand Avenue. Go there. Um, Enzo is the is one of the great waiters there, but they have a lot of other good waiters there. John, um, the the owners are are Fred and his brother John. Uh, also, their son Michael, who's the namesake of the original Michael. Uh, it's a great. It, the food there is phenomenal. It's absolutely phenomenal. Um, so I think uh, I think that's a, a great spot. Um, it, here in Manhattan, there's almost too many to um, to choose from. I like old school Italian, uh, but too, yeah. but um, and that's why I was so fond of Forlini's because it really was like going into a uh, a, a different uh, you know a, a, a time warp. There was a there's a restaurant uptown that um, that is very popular that uh, John Katsimatidis took me to once, and I'm trying to remember the name of it. That was great. It might have been Campagnola. Have you been to Campagnola? Oh, no, I haven't. So I, I have to double-check if it was indeed Campagnola, but uh, um, I, I, I know Campagnola has a great reputation, and that's uh, that's very good. In um, a little, Down by NYU, there's a great restaurant called Luca, uh, or Lupa, excuse me, Lupa is very good. Uh, but there's there's uh, there's a lot of great ones. There's almost too many to list inside Manhattan. Um, but uh, if you email me, I'll send you a few of uh, other of my recommendations for Manhattan. But in Brooklyn, uh, there's not a not a better spot than uh, than Michael's of Brooklyn. Definitely got to check it out because, like I said, Altoros has been great. Williamsburg Pizza, excellent uh, recommendations you made in the past. Very good. Well, wonderful. I'm, I'm uh, happy to hear that. That's great. Thank you. Uh, let me say hello to Joe in Queens. Hello, Joe. Yeah, Frank. Let me refer to a book and an article. Uh, one was Charlie Chaplin's autobiography. If you haven't read it, a great read. But he married a 19-year-old girl when he was 66 named Olga, who 
She might have been a hearse person that was uh, a rich. I'm surprised her parents let her marry him. But they had six kids. But it sound, according to the book, they didn't really, they just hired people to basically take care of the kids. But he did actually have six kids with Olga after he, you know, and he married her when he was 66. So that was one. And another thing, there's an article in the Wall Street Journal, it's probably from about 2015, of a woman that was still getting uh, health benefits from the, as a civil war. I remember that. Yes, I remember yeah. that. Yes. What happened was is uh, her, her father fought apparently first for the South potentially and then for the North and may have had a family prior. They were trying to figure it out. Then married, had her when she was 83, and and at the time of the article, she was like 82 with some health problems, and she was actually being paid for the by the government under her father who right. had fought the Civil War. Well, no, I, was, I I remember that. Now now is sort of a different age because of fertility treatment. Like this case in Argentina, this was not a child that was conceived naturally. This was a child that was conceived with, you know, help of medical science. So now that technology has enabled people to become parents at 83 years old, my question, I guess, is should they be? Should people be becoming well, well, parents the, at 83? The, the mother would, you would anticipate, would would still be alive, probably, and she could just get herself another uh, right, I, and, and I think that's sad. I, I think that's so sad, right? If a, if a child grow, and but again, who am I to judge, right? But if a child has to grow up one not knowing his father, and uh, a mother then feels obliged to try and hook up with another fella to try and give her young son a father figure, or this child is just raised through. Um, you know, through nannies and so forth. I, I think that's a shame. And I, it kind of listening to you, you say that it kind of brings me to where I began my thinking on this question, which is that there becomes an age in which you're too old to be a parent. I don't know what that age is. I think it might be 70. Um, but I don't know. You see D'Amato, D'Amato is still going strong. And uh, he had a child at uh, at 70. So maybe maybe it's not 70. Maybe it's older. What do you think? Have you ever been a parent later in life? 800-848-9222. If not, how old is too old to be a parent later in life? 800-848-WABC. Miriam is here in New York. Hello, Miriam. Hi. Uh, how are you? I'm so happy to to get through your line because, you know, I listen to you. I work nine. I work in the hospital. And today, someone calling sick, and I really enjoy this station. Oh, thank you. That's, well, that's great. We enjoy that you're listening to it. Yes. Uh, I I was listening from things, I'm sorry, things uh, 7 o'clock until, until now. Well, wonderful. And great. Then, so, listen, I want to tell you, I think the best thing a human being can can. Anything that can happen to a human being is to have an older parent because, you know, when you are an older parent, you tend to give better uh, education to a kid and you tend to kind of guide them properly and you tend to have more patience than when you are a younger parent. 
I can tell you that for an experience. My, I, I am, I had my son when I was when I was 48. Now I'm 62, and I think um, I think I've been the best mom ever because I really pay attention to my son and I make sure that my son, you know, learn things that I never learned in my life. You know, and I expose him to different things. And my son is 13, and my son is a very, my son is very well behaved. My son has very good grade in school. And I think, to me, in general, doesn't matter what age you are, you, you are I think, uh, you know, you can be a very good parent compared to young people that you see right now that they don't give good education, they don't care about kids. They, they leave them, most of the time, they leave them home without food. They don't pay attention. You know, so it doesn't well, matter what you know, I think you raised a lot of good points there, Miriam. And I agree with you because not only is there a certain wisdom that could come with having a child at uh, at 40 as opposed to 20, but... A lot of times, if you have a child at 48 instead of 18, you're in a much better position financially to take care of that child. But I will add, though, Miriam, that having a child at 48 is a lot different than having a child at 84. At 48, there's still a good chance that you're going to be around to help see your your child at least through to, you know to his 20s maybe even his 30s whereas if you're doing that at 83 or 84 all the positive benefits that you mentioned of having a child later in life aren't necessarily there because you may not be around to see that child reach b- even being a teenager yeah yeah you're right about that but you know comparing comparing like men can have kids even even when they're 120 years old and you know the difference between a man and a woman and women i mean for my for me it was hard but i i was able to to get you know to get pregnant but for a man, a man can, yeah. No, that's a great point. First of all, that's great. And uh, congratulations to you on your family. It sounds like you got a great family, and I'm glad things are going well for you, uh, Miriam. And thanks for listening. I hope you make it a a habit. Um, I I understand what you're saying, that men can have children much later in life. My only question at the moment is, should they? 800-848-9222. What do you think? 1-800-848-WABC. We'll take your calls and uh, cover a bunch of other interesting subjects. Straight ahead. WABC. Frank Marano. 77 WABC. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Uh, talking about this story, I just posted it if you want to read it on my Facebook page, facebook.com slash MoranoFan, about an 83-year-old who has become a father um, uh, to a, a baby. And 
there's a big part of me that thinks that this is selfish. And I'm curious what you think. 800-848-WABC. How old is too old to be a parent? And uh, have you, do you know anybody that was a parent much later in life? What was it like for them? Maybe it's even you. Let me say hello to uh, BJ in Queens. Hello, BJ. Hey, Frank. This is a great question. You know, when I was eight years old, my father dumped my mother hmm. and uh, five kids, you know. Oh, geez, I'm sorry. Yeah. No, well, no, it worked out better. He was a lousy father uh, to all of those kids. But uh, when I was 30, I got a call, uh, and he said, I'm going to uh, have a uh, son with my new wife. Mm. Now, how old was he at the time? 66. Uh-huh. So, um, <clears throat> and that uh, he lived to be uh, about 89. And, uh, the, you know, my half-brother uh, grew up. He's a very beta male, but they all had a pretty good life. Uh, and I think at that point in his life, he wanted to have a sane, balanced, serene family. You know, when he was having, he he came from an age he was a he had PTSD from the Korean War and stuff, and uh, drugs and alcohol problem all throughout his his uh, up until his forties. Um, so he really was a very unstable person. But he got very spiritual. And, uh, you know, that was probably the key to his life. He became a deacon in a Catholic church the whole Hmm. bit. So it it uh, sounds like, uh, you know, even in spite of his age, he was a much better father at 66 to your half-brother than he was to you and your siblings when he was 35. No, I was the parent. I was the parent. Uh, He was uh, unreliable, uh, never showed up. And I was better off for it. I was better off for it. And it's interesting you say, you know, when someone's 83, they don't have a child. It all depends, you know. The people, you know, I went back and forth with it uh, over the years, and someone said, well, Brendan, you can say you didn't have uh, this, that, and the other, but at least he gave you life. You see, at least he gave you life, and that's that's what you you walk away with. That's true. Uh, That's true. Well, you might have uh, caused me to uh, reconsider my take on this, BJ. Thank you. 800-848-WABC. Corey in Palm Bay, Florida. Hello, Corey. Hello, Frank. Hello. Let me uh, just throw a monkey wrench into this. I love monkey wrenches. Um, We're all just animals at the end and our main objective is to procreate correct and pass along our genealogy our bloodline so that's where i think maybe some people might be going with and uh if you do have a lot of money and you would be able to provide for this child i think 80s is Going to the extreme, um, my uncle waited till he was, you know, 56, and now he's got a 10-year-old daughter, and he's 60-something, but he's a very young 60-something, and his wife is younger than I am, and I'm 39, so. So for you, though, the the cutoff is probably around 80. I can't make that decision, but... 
you know. Um, well, I, and again, and Corey, I, I mean, again, I realize every person is different. There are people like my father right. is a senior citizen now. He's I think he's more youthful now than he was when he was when he was 40. I think he's in better shape, uh, you know, physically and mentally. My father could easily have a whole bunch of kids now. And, you know, I, I think my father's going to live for another 30, 40 years. No question about it. And he's still running marathons. He, he's in, he's the best softball player in our family still. Um, he can do it physically. He can do it mentally. And, you know, he's retired now. So he doesn't have work taking away other time commitments. I just wonder what age is too old. In my view, I still, even keeping in mind the the anecdote that BJ shared about his father, I think 83 is too old. I think it's selfish to have a child at 83. You're not going to be around when they're 12 or 15. And I, I think that's a tough thing to do to a kid. So what is the magic age? I think it might be 70. I mean, I think that's the... That in my brain, that's still the cutoff, even with what BJ said. So uh, that's the that's the cutoff for me. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Unless you can convince me otherwise, Morris is in Queens. Hello, Morris. Hi, Bronk. Uh, um, I think you're absolutely wrong. Would not be the first uh, time. because what is it? It would not be the first time that I'm absolutely wrong. But go ahead. Right, because. I think if God gave life to this child, to this child, it's absolutely fine. You know, it doesn't matter. You you around him, not around him. God will take care of him. So he can, you can take children at any, absolutely any age. My my opinion. All right. Uh, so eighty three, eighty four, eighty five, whatever age, you think uh, there's nothing. The, at all irresponsible about becoming a parent at that age. And now, and again, I want, I want to stress th- this was done purposefully and intentionally with the help of fertility treatments. This, didn't, this was not a happy accident. They went out with the father at 83 years old and his wife being 35. They went out and went to a fertility clinic and decided to go this route. This was planned. It was not... A happy accident. This was strategic on their on their part. Well, this was their plan, you know. So, child was planned. All right. Well, hey, I, I guess uh, it's my opinion. I, it, it certainly is, Morris. You know, opinions are, um, you know, are uh, ubiquitous on this one. I suppose eight hundred eight four eight WABC. Let me say hello to Velma in Queens. Hello, Velma. Hi, hi. Listen, I had my son at 36, and I was ancient at that time because my son is 35. I wish I was older and wiser when I had him. I was really not ready to have him. I wasn't the best mom. However, having said that, when a parent at 83 has a kid and he planned it, that's fine also because I believe that God has intervened on every aspect. And so long as there's a one person that's a little bit younger, that it's going to guarantee that kid that he's going to have some sort of supervision and love like a, a parent should give. However, having said that also, the kid could die early. The kid could be sick. Sure. So I, I mean, and, and, and again, as I said, as I said, as you a 25-year-old, you could die at that age also. You know, I mean, there's just, yes, there are no guarantees could. in life. The bottom line is that. 
it could happen anyway. The kid could die. The mother could die. Maybe the father stays alive. Yeah. We're just assuming that and, the, and you're the right. You, you're you're right, Velma. You, there are no guarantees in life. Um, you're, yeah. We're all just playing like the percentages. Abraham, 120, he dies. You don't know if that guy's going to last that long. And his wife. Uh, that that's fair, Velma. Thank you. I'm betting he's not going to live as long as Abraham. That's my bet. Okay, we don't know. We'll see. Eight hundred eight four eight W A B C. Gary in Queens. Hello, Gary. Yeah, how you doing? Basically, uh, I think if you get thirty years out of a parent, you got a good deal. You make it to thirty, they're still alive. You did okay. Okay, well, I, I would agree with that. But if you that means if you're having a parent at eighty three. The chances exactly. are pretty unlikely that that's going to happen. Right, so that's ridiculous. Exactly. It's not fair to the kid, most of all. So, uh, I, uh, Gary, I think you're the first person that's really on the same page as me on, on this one. I, I find it incredibly unfair to this child who's going to have to grow up without knowing his father, in all likelihood. Exactly. And I don't care what your, your social status is, what your financial situation is. And kid, you know, you're, you're, you're six, seven, eight years old. You're, you're, you don't have a dad. I mean, that's a problem. Yeah. I, I, again, you know, you get 30 years out of a parent. That's fair enough. So you have a parent of 60. They make it to 90. Uh, you did OK. You yeah, know? I mean, yeah exactly. Yeah. Gary, thank you. A friend of mine, uh, he, he has older children, but he just had a baby girl at uh, 53, I believe. So he said his goal in life is to live to 93 so he could be at his daughter's 40th birthday party. Now, this day and age, and this is someone that's, you know, in good shape and, you know, can afford decent medical care and stuff. In this day and age, that's not crazy, right? I think that's a very laudable goal. But uh, if he were 83 at the time that this child was born, different ball game, different ball game. So that's that. By the way, uh, speaking of domestic life and uh, children, yesterday's adventure was the construction of a daybed in my office. Now, a daybed, as I understand it, is part sofa, part bed. Okay. Now, we had a perfectly good sofa in my office. I loved sleeping on it. It was great to have meetings in there. The cats loved sleeping on it. Guests loved sleeping on it. But my my wife has determined, so we got rid of the sofa that was in my office. I think we gave it to my sister-in-law, Deborah. And my wife has determined that the bed that is currently in Carmine's room, my seven-month-old son, Carmine, we are going to get rid of that and do something else with that so that we could put a more childlike bed in Carmine's room. That's the game plan. Well, we'll by the way, I'm sure it'll be a, a production and a half to move that bed wherever we end up moving it. But that's a story for another day. So I have had no seating in my office for a while. And once this Carmine bed, the spare bedroom, the spare bed that's in Carmine's room is taken out of... Uh, circulation, then we're going to have nowhere for guests to sleep. Okay? So we ordered this day bed a few days ago. And this was, remember, the Ikea incident where these Ikea guys came and after we paid a $70 delivery fee, they then sent an SMS text message to my wife asking for an additional gratuity, which we, of course, suckers that we are, we gave it to them. But they didn't even... 
put this together. So now it's on me to put this together. And my wife's warning me all week, you know, this is going to be something that uh, I'm going to help you with and we can put together. And on Friday, on Saturday, we're going to a wedding. So my sister-in-law, Sharon, and her husband, James, are coming to watch the baby. And they're staying at our house on Saturday. And apparently, we just learned yesterday, they're coming over on Friday night to stay on Friday night as well. So Rachel says to me, wouldn't it be great if we could get the day bed operational in time for Sharon and James to come on Friday? I'll help you put it together. It'll be, I don't think it's too difficult. Okay. So then uh, my wife comes back from doing her errands around 8 o'clock. I'm working on the show. I'm reading the papers and going over different things. And she comes back and she said, all right, it's time. She said, we don't have to finish it all tonight. We'll finish. You know, we can do it over two days. Let's just start it. Let's just start it and we get to a point that uh, that we that we feel like we need to take a break. We'll take a break. Okay. So we start working on this, and I love instruction manuals like this. I really do. It's an instruction manual with no words. I hate these. Who do they think is doing this? It's basically a, a an instruction manual designed by the guys that do the chalk outlines at crime scenes. Okay. It's basically stick figures, if that, and 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 graphic illustrations. Would it kill them to have you know you know my kind of instructions that I like? I like when there's little stickers on the pieces saying A, B, C, D, and then the instructions have an illustration and then words beside the illustration that say attach A to B using screw Z. Right. I love that. It's easy to understand. You got the words there. You got the picture. You got the letters. There's no letters. There's no words. There's only pictures. And um, so we get started on this. And I see there's 28 steps to putting together this day bed. So I say to my wife, all right, let's get half done today. Let's complete steps one through 14. And she doesn't agree with that. She says, no, let's do as much as we can until we're both ready to kill each other or ourselves, and then we'll take a break. And, you know, if you've ever argued with my wife, you know who's going to win that one. She wins that one. So, uh, but in my brain, I kept referring to 14 as the magic number in which we would stop. So we're going forward with this, and we're on step two or three. Step one was surprisingly easy. You know, step one, even though there's no words. And all these pieces look alike. And they're not labeled. So, st- and, and it's funny. The instructions, which are only just pictures, they, have, they tell you what kind of screw you're using. Oh, take screw 2448 and screw it into this thing that there's two of. Now, you look at the screw. There's nothing on the screw that says it's 2448. How are you supposed to know that that's a screw 2448? Looks like every other screw. And it looks like the screw that it's telling you not to use. It actually, I've never seen this before with an instruction manual. It takes the pieces that look similar and it puts an X through the one that you're not supposed to use. So you have two pieces that look almost identical, but one's longer than the other. And it's got an X, like a no smoking sign around the one that you're not supposed to use. Couldn't this all have been avoided if they just threw a little A sticker 
on the one that you are supposed to use. So, fine. So we're getting to step three, and I'm screwing something in using my handy-dandy Allen wrench. I like that they included an Allen wrench because they usually include an Allen wrench similar in a similar size to the one you're supposed to use. So I'm using this Allen wrench to uh, tighten this screw. And I get three of the four screws in as I'm attaching one piece to another. Last piece is not going in. I'm looking at it, and it looks like this screw is missing something. And sure enough, it is. At least from my looking at it, it's missing the ridges, you know, the threading that allows one screw to be screwed into something else. So I go and get the next screw that looks like that, and it has the thread, and I screw that one in. Step three, done. Step four, done. Step five, done. We're getting through this. We're getting through this. We're making progress. And uh, my wife puts on some weird radio station. I don't even know what radio station it was. I think it was some weird college station. They were playing all sorts of bizarre music. And um, we're having fun with it where, you know, the, the, the bickering is at a minimum, which when we put together things together for us to have minimal bickering, that's a big accomplishment for us as a couple. And so I, I and we're joking around throughout the whole thing. I said, uh, I said, this is my favorite radio station, as which is of course not, as it's playing all this bizarre music, you know. And so we're going through step six, step seven, step eight, making a lot of progress. And now I'm sort of building around myself, right? So I've got uh, a metal bar in front of me, a metal bar beside me, a metal bar to the left, and I'm surrounded by a metal bar that I've constructed for myself. And I say to my wife, I said, this has got to be what it feels like to build your own jail cell. And for whatever reason, for whatever reason, she thinks this is the funniest thing in the world. So much so, she sent me an SMS text message at 1130 and sent me that line again and said, that's the best line you've had for a, in a while. And she repeated the line and said, um, this must be what it's like to build your own jail cell. I said, honey, that is not the best line I've had in a while. I'm glad you got a kick out of it. And you know how it is when you're working on something together. It builds a sense of camaraderie and a sense of communion. So I, I guess maybe she thought it was funnier than it was because I didn't think it was that funny. I mean, it's one of those things you just you just say. I'll tell you what was funny at the softball game that we had, the charity softball game last Saturday. I, there, somebody had hit a foul ball as judged by the umpire, Nick Barbaro, with a baseline umpire. Um, well, that was that. Well, that wasn't not the funny part. But so um, somebody had hit a, a fun a, a foul ball as judged by the baseline umpire Nick Barbaro, and uh, people were looking on the other side of the field trying to determine if the ball was foul or not. And uh, uh, Nick had made his call that it was foul, and I said uh, that ball was more foul than a chicken who wore no deodorant. Thank you. See, that's funny. That's funny. So we get through step seven, step eight, step nine. We're making all sorts of progress. And uh, I'm saying, all right, we're only five away from step 14. She says, no, we're going to keep going. We're doing so well. Let's at least finish this section. Step 15, step 16, step 17. And now this is starting to look like something. This is starting to look like a piece of furniture here. This is no longer looking like the foundation of a prison. This is looking like... Something really interesting. Step 18. And then we get to step 19. And there are 73 metal bars that all look identically alike. 
The difference is 36 of them have holes on one end and 34 of them don't. And then there's one other that's slightly longer than the others and have a, a place to screw things in on others. And we're expected to find, it's like a needle in a haystack, out of 73 metal bars that all look exactly alike, we have to find the one metal bar that has bolts on either side of it. So we find it. Step 20. Step 21. And then we step 21 it's one of those things where you have to use one of these screws, step 144, uh, screw 14458 or whatever they call it in the instructions. And you have to screw four of them in. So you screw one in. Got it. Screw another in. Got it. Screw another one in. Got it. And I have to just screw this last one in and I'll be done with step 21. And sure enough, it's that same screw. It's the only one left. It's the one that doesn't have any threading on it, and we can't screw it in. So we stopped at step 21. I go to shower and get ready for the show. My wife goes online and orders another one of these screws. I uh, finish my shower, get dressed, and my wife says, I ordered that screw. It will be here in three to five business days. So I said, I guess it's a race against the clock as to whether or not Sharon and James will be able to sleep in that day bed. She said, no, it'll never make it. They will not be able to sleep there on Friday. So we will have to sleep with Carmine in the spare, in the spare bed that's there, and we'll give them our room so that they're not woken up by the, by the child every few hours. Fine. I, I like sleeping with them, and I don't mind getting up in the middle of the night to, uh, to feed them or change them or whatever the case may be. So that was yesterday's adventure. We got two-thirds of the way there. We got to step 21 on a 28-step daybed. So hopefully this uh, mystery screw arrives sooner rather than later and we can complete it. Because now there's all sorts of just pieces of this daybed all over my office. And even I, who am not the most organized and the most... uh, the the cleanest person in the world don't love the fact that th- there's all these weird metal rods all strewn about my office. We'll see how that goes uh, tomorrow. Maybe we'll find another source for one of these mystery screws, or uh, maybe uh, it will be sooner than three to five business days. But that was yesterday's adventure, the incredible true story of putting together a day bed. WABC. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano, 77 WABC. Uptown got its hustlers, the Bowery got its bumps. The 42nd Street got Big Jim Walker, he a bull shooting son of a gun. Yeah, he big and dumb as a man can't come, but he's stronger than a country house. And when the bad folks all get together at night, you know they all call Big Jim Ball just because. And they say you don't tug on Superman's cape, you don't spit into the wind, you don't pull a mask off at old Lone Ranger, and you don't mess around with Jim. I don't do The great Jim Croce, you don't mess around with Jim, ain't that the truth? I'll tell you who I wouldn't mess around with. Texas Rangers pitcher John Gray. 
I like this guy. I didn't know who he was before yesterday, but I like this guy. I'm going to start rooting for him. If I was still in my days of playing fantasy baseball, I would I would recruit this guy. But he's in his first season with the Rangers after spending the first seven years of his career with the Rockies. I don't I don't remember him with the Rockies. The Rockies were, you know, a, a frequent opponent of the Mets. I'm sure I've seen him pitch against the Mets, but I just I don't remember it. And um, he appeared on a local sports radio station in uh, Texas on Tuesday, saying he definitely made the right decision to go from Colorado to Texas, and he's enjoying his time with the organization. And then he was asked about a nickname that he had been given, Ghost Hunter. And he explained that he had been given, he had been wearing the name for about five years and is ready at all times to, excuse me, to talk about the unexplained phenomena. He says, if you want to have a conversation about anything unexplained, I'm your guy. I'm going to try and get this guy on the radio because uh, this is right up our alley. We'll talk about it forever. And, And he, I still like to read up on everything and just figure out where that stuff in that field is kind of going. And when he was asked about the government admitting the existence of some unexplained aircraft, John Gray said it was about time. There's been a lot of unexplained things happening. I don't think there's little green guys and spacecrafts flying around, but there's something going on that we don't understand, and I think it's really cool. When asked about the existence of Bigfoot, Gray wasn't wasn't skeptical about that either. If someone asked me if I believe in Bigfoot, I, w- I wouldn't say no. There's so many things that happen that we can't explain, but we don't look into it. I think it's interesting. When it comes to Area 51, Gray said he didn't think too much uh, was happening there right now, but said he believed shady stuff has happened in the past. Very interesting. So I'm adding him to our list of future guests on the show. 800-848-9222. That's one 800 848 Nine two two two. You're welcome to comment on anything we've uh, we've touched upon thus far. Patricia is on Staten Island. Hello, Patricia. Hi. Good morning. Hope you're doing okay. Thank you. I'm doing great. I wanted to say that I think seventy is a stopping line because people forget when you're seventy, you're never going to feel like you're in your forties and fifties. And just to pick up a child, a lot of people are diminishing in strength at the age of 70. To pick up an 18-pound baby mm. when they're growing up. And to I think they forget all the patience. You know, you being a parent, I'm sure, you know, like you say, getting up during the night, running out, getting diapers. Plus, keeping up with the sports. I mean, you want to, if you want to enjoy the child, playing baseball, going to their games, and people are going to think you're the grandfather. Be ready for that. When they say, oh, you're the grandfather. You know, I think the, the hardest job in life is becoming a parent and taking care of the child. And I feel like we've got to give them all we can. I just think 70 is old to start. You don't have the energy. Yeah, I, I agree, Patricia. I think that would be, that's my, that's my Maginot line. 70 years old. I think anything older than that is a bit irresponsible and more than a bit selfish, to be honest. But look, other people disagree. You heard Morris and a couple of other people say, look, you're bringing children into the world, whatever age you could do it. That's a blessing. It's a blessing from God. Uh, I see what he's saying. I I don't agree. I think it's selfish after a certain point. And again, I realize Abraham lived to 120, 
I think Abraham is the exception. 800-848-WABC. Roger is in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Hello, Roger. Yeah, hi, thanks. Look, I'm assuming that you cannot sleep on that bed without that screw. That's right, yes. It's really important. If that's the case, take one of the good samples back out and go to a, 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 a comprehensive hardware store and see if they can match it up. Um, it might have a, have a Phillips head or a slot head, but if the threads are the same and the same length and diameter, maybe you just uh, maybe a hardware store can just match it up and you can finish it up. Yeah, it is, it is a weird screw. And, Roger, that thank you. That's actually what my friend Mark, who's a friend of mine going all the way back to elementary school, just posted in the um, in the Facebook group. And if you want to uh, participate in any of the conversations in the Facebook group, just go to Morano Radio Fans and Haters. I may do that tomorrow. I have to, you know, again, I try not to leave the house before I need to come to work, but I'm going to have to leave to do two things tomorrow. I didn't get to the drugstore yesterday to pick up my psoriasis prescription. So I have to get a haircut this morning at 830. That's mission one. And uh, mission two. So the next time you hear me, the next show that we do, I will have far less hair than I do now. And uh, mission two is to get to the pharmacy and pick up my prescription. Perhaps when I do both of those things, and I know this is just crazy ambitious, I may try to make the third task a visit to the hardware store and bring that screw. But the thing is, that then delays me going to sleep significantly. If I try to do all those things, then that means... I'm going to wake up at 4 o'clock instead of, you know, 2.30. And then it becomes like I'm playing beat the clock in order to get everything done in time for tomorrow's show. By the way, tomorrow, I believe we are confirmed, Julian Assange's brother will be on this show. So I'm very much looking forward to that conversation. Not sure if it's going to be the 2 o'clock hour or the 3 o'clock hour, but it's going to be one you're not going to want to miss. Those of you that are on hold, please continue to hold. I'll get to you as soon as we can. And for the rest of you, until next hour, in the words of the great Barry Farber, keep asking questions. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They run in a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. the side of midnight i'm frank morano you know one of the things i like to do on this show is make lists lists of things lists of interesting things especially related to uh things that can be consumed be they food books movies television programs whatever yesterday or two days ago technically my new sister-in-law cat was uh, visiting our house visiting young carmine and she has a couple of weeks before she starts our, her new job and she was hanging out with us and uh, we're sitting on our front porch, one of my favorite things to do. when I'm uh, doing some work on the computer, reading some articles, entertaining her. I might have had a cigar at the time. Okay. And she's never been to Atlantic City. 
and you know the enthusiasm I have for Atlantic City. Just give you an idea. Uh, but by the way, we're doing the AC report coming up in about 25 minutes. Do you realize how irrational it is for a radio station that reaches 38 states to focus on one city in New Jersey every week and to do that for a year and a half? That, I mean, that's crazy. No radio consultant or radio programmer in the world would ever stand for that. And yet, the ratings for this hour every week are through the roof. Both the streaming ratings and the traditional radio ratings and the podcast ratings, all through the roof. Makes no sense. Um, but the point is, I have an irrational love of Atlantic City. There are other places you could gamble. There are other places you could go out to dinner. There are other places you could go to the beach. Other places you could go to the boardwalk. Other places you could go for drinks. There are other places you could go for entertainment. Uh, there are places closer that offer all those things. But there's just something about Atlantic City. So Kat, my new sister-in-law, has never been to Atlantic City. So I'm telling her all about Atlantic City. And I just, I have, as you could probably tell, I have an obsessive streak to me. And when I get in the habit of talking about something or that I'm excited about, be it a political issue, be it a whatever, a restaurant, whatever. I just get in the habit. Of, I can't stop. It's almost like you've uncorked something. For example, my other brother, Alexander, his girlfriend, Marley, she is, tells me that her friend is visiting Atlantic City for the first time the weekend of July 1st. I've never met this friend. I don't even know the friend's name. And Marley said, I remember when I went to Atlantic City for the first time that uh, you wrote me this memo of things that you might be able to that, that I might want to try. She, she said, if you still have that, maybe you could just send that over to me again. And of course, I didn't do that. I wrote a brand new memo, including all the things that she could do, her friend in Atlantic City for July 1st, that weekend. The memo is six pages. It includes dining, gaming, uh, nightlife, beach, boardwalk, museums, attractions, six pages for, you know, not, I'm not exactly flush with free time. For someone that I've never met, I wrote out six pages of recommendations to Atlantic City. So I'm, I'm, I'm now, Kat's got me in a, and Kat's my new sister-in-law, has got me in a, in a mode where I'm excited to talk about Atlantic City. I'm, I'm very excited. And I'm just going on and on and on. And I start, she's not a, even asking questions at this point. She's just sitting there. This is what I picture it being like trying to interact with a mental patient. She's just sitting there listening to me rant without any sort of mild prompt. And I get the sense that she raises an eyebrow or nods as if to kind of acknowledge what I'm saying and not make me feel like I'm a total mental patient. But there's no interaction. I'm just going. I'm just going. And I get in the mode of trying to tell her about the best motion pictures that have been filmed in Atlantic City. And I mention, of course, the Burt Lancaster film, Atlantic City. I mention The Godfather Part Three, which has a, a couple of great scenes in, uh, in Atlantic City. I mention the new Halle Berry film that uh, we had the, the uh, producer of, that she directed, um, uh, Bruised. I mention Warrior. I mention all these films. And I mention a film called Snake Eyes. And then she said, oh, well, what's that? What's the story with Snake Eyes? And I said, Snake Eyes is an interesting film. I said, I saw Snake Eyes in theaters about 24 years ago. 
Snake Eyes has one of the best beginnings to a motion picture that I've ever seen. And the rest of the movie, eh, it's okay. It won't kill you. But the rest of the movie is pretty mediocre. But the first 10 to 15, maybe 20 minutes of Snake Eyes is just phenomenal. So we end that conversation, and she's hanging out. And um, we're sitting in our living room, and I just speak into the remote control. And I love these smart televisions that you could just speak into. And I just speak into the remote control, and I say Snake Eyes. And it brings it up on whatever streaming service it's available on, and I start playing it. And she doesn't even know that I put on Snake Eyes. She just sees this film that's put on there with Nicolas Cage and all sorts of interesting things happen, Gary Sinise, and she's hooked. And then I stop it after about the first 15, 20 minutes, one, because she had to hop on a bus back to Brooklyn, but two, because the motion picture kind of it kind of drops off from there. And I said, how great was that as a beginning? She said that was incredible. That was an incredible beginning. So it got me thinking. I said, that's got to be one of the best beginnings of a film ever, especially what you consider what, what comes after it. There's a few other films that have great beginnings and then kind of trail off. And uh, I remember my dad told me about cigars years ago. Sometimes cigars have a very strong beginning. Sometimes they're powerful in the middle. And sometimes they finish really well. The same is true with motion pictures. So I'm wondering if we can make a list of the motion pictures that have the best beginnings. Maybe it's an opening scene. Um, Maybe it's the first 15 minutes or the first 20 minutes. But a film that has just a magical beginning. And then that that's worth seeing just for the beginning. And then the rest of the film is, eh, it's okay. Now, there are f- certain films that have a great opening scene and a great beginning, and then the rest of the film is just as great. Uh, Citizen Kane, for instance. The Godfather, for instance. But I'm talking about a film that's five-star in the beginning. Amazing. You can't even believe a film this good was ever made. And then you see the rest of the movie, and eh, it's okay. I came up with a list of five. One, and uh, this is one that a lot of people have said this of over the years, even at the time that it came out. I think the whole movie is pretty good, but the beginning is next level. And I don't think the rest of the film is comparable to the first, you know, the first portion of this film. And that's Saving Private Ryan. And there's another film that's about 10 years old now that I think is worth seeing just for the beginning. And the rest of the film is good, as any film that has John Goodman, which I think he is in it, uh, any film that has John Goodman is, but it's not as good as the beginning. And that's a Denzel Washington movie called Flight. Did you see Flight? I mean, the beginning of this film, you are riveted, clued to your seat. You have to go to a... If you have to go to the bathroom while you're watching the beginning of the film Flight, tough. You better hope there's a bucket nearby because you're not getting up. What else? What is a film that has a great beginning 
really compelling, really interesting. And then after that, mm, it kind of delves into mediocrity. 1-800-848-WABC. That's 1-800-848-9222. So I just named three. Snake Eyes, Saving Private Ryan, and Flight. Um, I have two more that I came up with, but I'm curious what else you come up with. 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. Someone just sent me an SMS text message, Balderdash. I'm not sure if that's a a film or if he's just disagreeing with my comments. So Balderdash. uh, I I think he's probably just disagreeing with my comments. 800-848-WABC. Here are my other two. One is a German film that came out in the uh, mid to late 90s. It's called Run, Lola, Run. I saw the first four minutes of Run, Lola, Run. And and Run, Lola, Run, it's a German experimental thriller film. And I just said, wow, I'm hooked. I I have to see how this ends. And I saw it. It was good. It was good. It was creative. It was different. I liked it. But it's not like the first four minutes. And then um, the another one that I think fits into this category, and I was hesitant to put it on the list because I love this picture, and I think the whole film is good, but the beginning up until the first kind of key twist, I'd say the first 15 minutes is really very special, especially if you don't know what to expect. And it's a film that came out a year or two ago with um, Andy Sandberg, and it's called Palm Springs. The beginning of that picture... It's I, at least until that first twist, I think is very, very clever. Eric in Manhattan, what do you have for us? Frank, Frank, good morning, good evening. Uh, off the top of my head, a good one is: uh, Do you ever see Heavy Metal, an adult science fiction comic book movie? The sequel to that, Heavy Metal Two Thousand. No, I never, saw, I, I never saw. The, I, I never saw it. So either of them, oh, you have to see it. Both of them are. Well, the the, the first half hour, forty five minutes of the second, the sequel, great. It's not a comic. The first one's like an anthology. It's three or four stories. This one, it's one story, but it's just after the first 45 minutes, it's like, I mean, it's like. See, see that, that's what I'm movie. talking about. So it's called Heavy yeah. Metal 2000. Heavy Metal is the first one. See that first. Heavy oh, Metal. Uh, okay, but the, 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 one, yeah. the one that you say has the, the very com- compelling beginning yeah. is Heavy Metal 2000? Heavy Metal 2000. Billy Idol does a voice in it. Um, oh. Oh, uh, Michael Ironside, too. They're, they're awesome. But uh, after I, that first, yeah. I will throw it yeah, on my list. Thank you, Eric. Jimmy in Rockland County, what do you have for us, Jimmy? How about Full Metal Jacket? Full Metal Jacket. You know, I, I'm trying to remember the beginning, and I don't want to give spoilers with away to people that haven't seen it, but that's with Private Gomer Pyle. Yes, in. yes. Don't say what happens. Don't say what happens in case people haven't okay. seen it. That is compelling. That is compelling. I'm, sure. I'm going to put that on the list. That's a good one. That's a great okay, example very good, of what I'm talking about. Yeah, have a great night. Thank you, Jimmy. 800-848-WABC. Michael is in Roselle, New Jersey. Hello, Michael. Yes, hi. Uh, one of the greatest movies ever made is called Sunset Boulevard with William Holden and Gloria Swanson. And it has an incredible, compelling beginning to that film, if you remember Sunset Boulevard. I, I do, and I love William Holden. And he's he. it begins um, with the narration and... Uh, and I don't want to, again, if people haven't seen it, I want to ruin it for them. It begins with him in the pool, right? Yes, exactly. Yes. And okay. then he does the narrative. It's an, it's an incredible picture. 
uh, and it's uh, it's just amazing his performance. And he was nominated for the Academy Award, but then he won it after that for Stalag uh, Seventeen. Uh, Seventeen, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, both directed by uh, Billy Wilder. Yeah, uh, both great films, by the way. That is a good one. I'm putting Sunset Boulevard on the list. The films that have the best beginnings, especially if they kind of taper off after the beginning. 800-848-9222. Ivan is in Woodhaven. Hello, Ivan. How you doing? Uh, I have two. Okay. One of them is very, very funny with Malta Mathau. Okay, which one? The uh, Taking of Pelham 123. Ah, okay. I, I have seen that. It's been a while. I don't know that I remember the beginning. Oh, it's a, I can describe it to you, but uh, it would be uh, illegal for me to uh, <laughs> be too uh, explicit uh, it, because that movie was done in a different day and age. Sure. And what's uh, your other one? Uh, oh, the other one is very stylish, excellent movie. I believe it was Mickey Rourke's. Uh, initial movie appearance, and that would be Pope of Greenwich Village. Oh, that is a good one. Uh, that uh, is a good one. With the with uh, the summer wind, and uh, he's dressing up. It's just an excellent beginning, and it's yeah. a very good movie. It is. It very is. Uh, bo- uh, well, I don't remember taking a poem one, two, three. The beginning. I do remember the beginning of the Pope of Greenwich Village. Both great. Uh, b- both great films. Uh, Ernest is in Stanford, Connecticut. Hello, Ernest. Uh, good morning. The opening scene to The Running Man with the, with the two old men r- driving their cars recklessly, crashing into the fuel tanker, the opening scene to Running Man. Okay, that's a good one. Uh, obviously, I love any film that has Jesse Ventura in it, and uh, Jesse Ventura is in that one. He's great in that. Bobby Lynn is in Pennsylvania. Hello. Hey. I was thinking of that movie. Every time I watch it, I said it starts out so good, and that- and then it just kind of gets silly. Is that uh, Stargate? Oh, the original Stargate. The original Stargate. When they, yeah, it, it's like leading up, and it's very interesting. And then all of a sudden, it gets a little crazy and wacky when they finally get to the other side of where Stargate leads. And uh, I always thought, you know, that that's a good just, one. I do remember the beginning, and I remember the rest of the film being pretty mediocre. That's a good one. I am going to put right. that one on the list. Thank and, you. Uh, what about Troy? Troy. Yeah. Yeah, is this Troy the opening scene with Brad Pitt? Brad Pitt. I don't even know if that's the opening yeah, no, no, scene. Yeah, no, 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 no. That no, is the opening where scene where, the where they where they summon the Achilles. Yeah, that's yeah. awesome. That, you know, that is a great one, actually. That's a, two uh, very good examples. Thank you. See, that's see, I knew I was asking the right crowd here. Uh, and, you know, Paul Grimaldi just emailed me one, and I think this is a good one, too. Cliffhanger with Sylvester Stallone. That first scene, let's be honest, is all you really need to see in the film. You don't need to see the rest of the film. You just need to see that first scene. After that, eh, it's okay. But you you only need to see that. That is a good one. Tommy in Brooklyn, what do you have for us, Tommy? 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 All right, no big, no big deal. Um, Mike says Inglorious Bastards. You know, I did a little research for the films with the best opening scenes, and that was on a lot of people's lists. I And I agree that opening scene is very, you know, I'm going to put it on the list because that opening scene is very anxiety-inducing, I think is the best way to put it. But I find the rest of that film so good. 
that I think the rest of the film lives up to that opening scene. But, you know, maybe you're right. That is such a good opening. It probably does have to be given some special recognition. Chris, here in New York, what do you have for us, Chris? Uh, I think the entire movie is excellent, but the opening scene from 2001 Space Odyssey is, is my favorite scene in the whole movie. You know, that is that is a good one. I almost put that one on my list, too. I think the opening is uh, probably better than the whole film. Uh, that is a good one. Um, and, you know, obviously, as a Ric Flair fan, anything with that sequence of music, I just just love uh, all right, 800-848-9222. We're gonna do the uh, we're gonna do the AC report coming up in a few minutes. Jay in Cincinnati's been patiently holding. Hello, Jay. Hey Frank, I love the way we got those IKEAs out here also, and uh, I love the pictographs and the instructions. They must have Egyptians on their staff, <laughs> you know, that, that make those darn instructions up because you, you you just have to wonder, don't you? You do indeed. You do indeed. Good luck finding that extra part, man. Thank you. Yeah, you know, uh, my friend Mark and the caller both suggested going to the drugstore to to uh, see if they have a, a matching screw, and we may do that. Uh, but to, for me to do three out-of-the-house tasks before I leave for work, that's unlikely. That's unlikely. Christina is in New Jersey. Hello, Christina. Hey, good morning, Frank. Morning. Thank you for keeping me awake. Oh. I love your show. Well, that's so nice of you. Thank you. Especially the songs, Metallica. I love that. Oh, thanks. Appreciate um, it. I was going to tell you about my mother didn't uh, have a child, but she adopted a baby when hmm. uh, early 60s. And my mother had seven kids. Wow. And we everybody was upset because, you know, we grew up poor. And now that we can afford to give our parents, you know, a good life, that she can go on vacation and stuff, you know. And she's raising a kid. You know, she's 14 now, and she's a little brat. <laughs> and my mother, you know what I mean? Like, my mother has no patience, and I'm like, I told you so. So how would you say it worked out for her? She doesn't admit, you know what I mean? Like, she doesn't want to admit that she has no patience, that she, you know, that she did a, a she regrets. You know what I mean? She doesn't want to admit, but we see it. So uh, hopefully, hopefully this girl is going to turn out to be, you know, take care of my mother in the future. You know what I mean? Because she's still they live in Brazil. We live here. So, you know what I mean? It's, yeah. It's yeah. hard. Uh, no, it is. And uh, and look, 62 is even, you know, I've seen it, parenting go very well for some young people in their early 60s. I think when you get to your early 70s, I think it's a different ball game if they were just starting from the beginning. But it's great that your mom is such a good person that she wanted to help someone along and uh, give them, uh, you know, a better a better life than they would have had if your mother wasn't in it. So, uh, you know, I think 62 is a lot different from 82. I really do. Bill is in Connecticut. Hello, Bill. Opening scene in Gladiator with Russell Crowe. That uh, is a good one. That's a good one. Gladiator is certainly a good one. Thank you, Bill. Uh, the whole film is great, but you're right. The opening is pretty special. Andy B., the father of our theme song, uh, calling from Staten Island. Hello, Andy. Frank, you make me sound like 80. Listen, I... Wait, well, it's your phone connection that does that. It's not me. Space Odyssey, the monkeys, but I got a better one. Beat Street. Beat Street. The king of the beat. She rocking from across the street. It's like one of the best rap songs ever. And it just kicks in right. 
Dang. Beach Street. Yes, record scratching and, and like top notch record scratching. And bassy. It's one of the first like mega bass where you had to have that that what's that bass beat under the floor. Yeah, well, what? Yeah. I'll have to check it out. Uh, I, uh, I it's not ringing a bell. I'll have to check it out. Frank, check me out. I'm supposed to be like a record producer. <laughs> I don't know. The, I didn't remember the the bass speaker. You know the bass speaker. Mm-hmm. You put it under the so, hey, Frank, when are we going to get together and play some ping pong, bro? Soon. I have a wedding this Saturday, so I'm out of commission this Saturday. But let's take a look maybe next weekend. I have I have to tell you, you're going to learn a ton of stuff from me. Yeah, believe me, I need yeah, to learn a few lessons. Song. Sorry? You know what? I heard a song that you sang. You sang with your friends that you do the podcast with. Right. What's that? About a week ago, somebody played. It was Curtis. You know, he was flipping out. Dude, it was great. It was a great song. You guys were singing harmony. What song was it? I don't know. It was from your podcast. I think you guys wrote it. I think it was an original song. Really? Interesting. All right. Well, I'll have to go and look into that, Andy. Thank you. Yeah, I have never been gifted with with much in the way of musical ability, but uh, hopefully... What I lack in singing talent, I can make up for in spoken word talent, right? And as you can see, you know, some people have uh, been able to take that spoken word experience. People like William Shatner, for instance, uh, maybe even uh, Richard Harris to some extent, and parlay that into some uh, musical successes as well. All right, we're going to go live to Atlantic City in just a moment. Uh, We're going to talk to Michael Chait. He is the president of the Greater Atlantic City Chamber of Commerce. We'll find out what's happening there this weekend and what's happening there this summer. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Straight ahead. WABC. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. 77 WABC. This is the AC Report. Well, they blew up a chicken man in Philly last night And they blew up his house, too Down on the boardwalk, they're ready for a fight Gonna see what them racket boys can do Now there's trouble busting in from out of state And the DA can't get no relief Gonna be a rumble on the promenade And the gambling commissioner's hanging on by the skin of his teeth Everything dies, baby, that's a fact But maybe everything that dies someday he comes back Put your makeup on, fish your hair up pretty And meet me tonight in Atlantic City Oh, that's right. It's time for our weekly look at one of the most interesting communities in the world. There is no place quite like Atlantic City. And a man that knows that all too well is Michael Chait. He is the president of the Greater Atlantic City Chamber of Commerce. Michael, thanks so much for getting up early for us. I know uh, we're asking a lot of you to begin your day this time. No, I appreciate you having me. It's, It's okay. I get up early all the time, so thanks. Wonderful. Now... What exactly is the uh, Greater Atlantic City Chamber of Commerce? What do you guys do? 
We're a nonprofit organization. We are uh, the voice of the business community for really Atlantic County. We have uh, 470 members. Uh, like most business associations, you know, 80% is, is your small businesses. Uh, the other 20% are your larger businesses, your casinos, your healthcare, your education, uh, utilities, et cetera. But we advocate on behalf of the of the business community. Um, you know, uh, initiative of ours is, is, you know, workforce development, clean and safe initiatives in Atlantic City, et cetera. But that's what we are. We're a group of like-minded business people that, that uh, advocate for better business practices in, in Atlantic City and Atlantic County. Now, are there other chambers here in New York? I know uh, there's the New York Chamber, then there's the Greater New York Chamber, then there's the Brooklyn Chamber, the Staten Island Chamber. Is Atlantic City a city with a thousand chambers, or is it just you? No, it's it's not Atlantic City. There, there's a couple other business associations. There's a Metropolitan Business and Citizens Association, which is really focused. Uh, they're a 501c3. They're a true nonprofit. We're a 501c6, which is is more of a, a an association for businesses, but there are several uh, outside business associations in Atlantic County. Brigantine has a chamber. Margate has a business association. Summers Point has a business association, but we all work together. Uh, there's larger ones like the South Jersey Chamber and the State Chamber as well. Did you grow up in Atlantic City? And uh, if not, what brought you down there? No, I did. I'm, I'm born and raised in Atlantic City. Uh, grew up there. You know, my first job was public works, cleaning the beaches in Atlantic City. Spent almost nine years at Boardwalk Hall in the Atlantic City Convention Center. I valet parked as a kid. Uh, you know, I had about every type of job there is. I was a marketing director for the Press of Atlantic City. So I'm, I'm, lo- I'm a local kid. Uh, that's terrific. I mean, uh, it's, I think Atlantic City is one of those rare communities where there are still plenty of people that grew up there and there's plenty of people that have moved there. Uh, one of the big events that people look forward to each and every year is taking place this weekend. It kills me that I'm not going to be around this weekend to see it. That's the uh, the air show. For people that may not be familiar with it, what exactly is the Atlantic City air show? Why is it such a big deal? Well, the air show is not going to not this weekend. We're starting to promote it. It's actually August twenty fourth. It's, oh, it's a midweek air show. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Okay, I thought it was yeah, June. Yeah, yeah, that's okay. I was starting June twenty fourth. I thought August twenty August twenty fourth is the air show. It starts um, Tuesdays the the day prior. Monday, all the pilots and everything uh, start arriving. It's it's the I believe it's the United States' largest midweek air show. It's definitely the largest event in the state, which attracts over 400,000 people annually. Uh, it's predominantly a free event. Uh, you know, we, we belong to an air show association uh, where we, we book civilian and military performers. And it's there are very few free events of this magnitude across the country. So it's, it's, we do everything from booking the performers to uh, the social media, to ordering the jet fuel, you name it, uh, all the sponsorship activation uh, all goes through our organization. And and so um, what makes it so unique? If people haven't seen this and I have seen it and it is pretty special, what makes it different from other air shows that people could see in other places? Well, one, it takes place over the ocean. So, you know, that it's free. It's on the beaches of Atlantic City. It takes place over the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, if you have not seen an air show over the ocean, it's quite a spectacle. When those Thunderbirds, mm. you know, buzz boardwalk hall and fly right over and onto the beach, it, it is pretty exceptional. So you're talking, you know, we sell tickets to about maybe 2,000 people at Show Center. So the other 398,000 are free. Uh, but it is really a mission for uh, those that serve in first responders and the brave men and women in the military. Walking on the boardwalk, hearing those jets, <clears throat> you know, it's kind of the sound of freedom over the ocean. So, so people love it. It is a an amazing, amazing event. You can learn more about it at AtlanticCityAirShow.com.
Uh, well, that's terrific. I am going to try and get down there for that. Maybe we'll try and do the show from there uh, that week. Uh, but if, uh, if people haven't seen it, it's definitely worth checking out. I'm glad I won't miss it then uh, this weekend. Hey, um, uh, what is happening this weekend is pretty cool. And the last time he was down there, he was on this show promoting it, is Kelsey Grammer is going to be in Atlantic City giving pouring beer for people Friday night. Pretty cool that, that Kelsey Grammer has, has kind of found a niche in Atlantic City and uh, coming back down to the Irish pub. It, it is, and, and he does uh, some things at the Steel Pier as well. But it, his beer is really good. Uh, he loves Atlantic City. We're... You know, I lost you there. In fact, let's try and disconnect Michael and just call him back on the phone because I'm hearing an echo back. Uh, so we'll we'll try and get a hold of uh, of Michael as we find out a little more about what the Atlantic City uh, Chamber of Commerce is doing. Uh, again, we um, uh, appreciate uh, Izzy pitching in for uh, for Matt Blaze, who's uh, who's off today. Uh, meantime, let me say hello to Joe in Ronkonkoma. Hello, Joe. Hey, Frank. Uh, re- really quick, I heard your conundrum with your piece of furniture i'm gonna give you a little tip here take the screw and take the pants the booklet and put it together send your wife to ikea some people get their pieces of furniture assembled there they have tons of extra spare parts there frank They'll give you your screw right then and there. Mm. Well, but you know, the thing is then, uh, there's no Ikea near us. We'd have to go to either Red Hook, Brooklyn, or or somewhere in New Jersey to, to travel to Ikea. I think we may be better off just going to a hardware store and seeing if they have that particular type of screw. Well, yeah. Well, before you go to the hardware store, tell them they might be a machine shop or something local to your house that has those types of screws, uh, you know, depends on what type of hard whistle you're going to. Don't go to Home Depot. It's Home Depot. If you go to, like, to a mom-and-pop type of store, you probably will have a, a better chance of getting it there. And also about, you were talking about babies and huh. uh, age cutoff. I'm 47. I have an 11- and 15-year-old. I say 40, Frank. I'm dying here. <laughs> My body. My body is aching. I can't. I'm working two jobs. I could not see at 70 years old having a kid. It's just ridiculous. Uh, Have a great night. Thank, great show. Thank you, Joe. Pre- appreciate it very much. All right. We're going to try and reconnect again with uh, Michael Chait of the uh, Greater Atlantic City Chamber of Commerce. See, that's what we get for uh, not knowing, for me not knowing the date of the air show is uh, I figured you, you're penalizing us by uh, having a, a tougher connection, Michael. <laughs> Sorry about that. So, um, so it is neat. It's going to be neat to see Kelsey Grammer uh, pouring beer at. Is he going to be at the Irish Pub again tomorrow night? I, I believe he is. I believe he is. I, there, there's a lot going on this weekend in Atlantic City. Atlantic City Seafood Seafood Music Festivals this weekend at Baderfield. Uh, Andrea Bocelli is at, is at Hard Rock this weekend. If you haven't seen him, I saw him years ago at Boardwalk Hall. Just the most unique and incredible events I've ever seen. Uh, so uh, I know on uh, July first. There's going to be Friday night fireworks. This weekend, we got Kelsey Grammer. Uh, we got the Atlantic City Seafood Festival, which is pretty self-explanatory. What else is happening this weekend? There's a lot going on. You have all your, your, your standard uh, variety shows at the casinos. I think Bocelli's the, probably the biggest act sure. that's in town. In your surrounding towns, Margate does a, a beach stock that's really cool. Uh, it's a it's beach concert. It's a lot of cover bands. Uh, family entertainment. Hamilton, Hamilton, New Jersey, in Atlanta County, is actually doing uh, a blueberry festival. You know, Jersey's the blueberry of the world. 
So this blueberry festival that they do in Hamilton, New Jersey, is actually a really fun family event, too. Yeah, I, I know uh, Kellyanne Conway, who used to uh, work for President Trump, she was actually the blueberry uh, the uh, blueberry princess in Hamilton when she was growing up there uh, for a time. So uh, an illustrious, illustrious history of people that have worn that, uh, you know, that uh, <laughs> th- that cr- title um, in terms of the, what the casinos are doing. We've talked a little bit about the investment that Bally's has made. Uh, they're renovating their rooms. They're adding new restaurants. Mm-hmm. It looks like Caesars is doing that with the Trop. It looks like even. The newest of all the casino hotels, the Ocean, is going forward with uh, substantial renovations. Why are these casinos, at a time when there's so much increased gambling competition from other jurisdictions, why are they looking to make such a a broad investment at this point? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, certainly they believe in Atlantic City. They're they're investing hundreds of millions of dollars, and over the past several years, it it approaches a billion dollars of their investment. So what you've seen, certainly through the pandemic, is is the growth of online gaming. You know, it's too easy to game from your phone or your PC mm-hmm. or your laptop, whoever, and, and that's creating significant revenue. But a lot of that revenue doesn't come to the casinos. So they're investing in the customer experience. They're investing in dining options. You know, you mentioned Caesars. They're bringing in Gordon Ramsay's uh, Hell's Kitchen. They're bringing in Nobu. Uh, they're improving their rooms. They're investing in entertainment. Um, they're putting uh, resorts is putting a, a rooftop on its outdoor pool. So it's indoor and outdoors. So they believe in Atlantic city. They want to keep customers entertained. They want to keep it lively. Um, it gives a, a new perspective to when you bring customers back. I mean, we've entertained over 20 million people a year. So what keeps them coming back? What's it, what gets them off their phone and back into Atlantic City? But the, what they're doing and, and the amount that they're investing in creating these experiences is really incredible. Uh, coming up uh, towards the end of July, they're having the 42nd National um, Sports Collectors Convention with a star-studded lineup of athletes and other celebrities who are going to be there signing autographs. Uh, you have uh, Daryl Strawberry, Larry Walker, Steve Garvey, Goose Gossage, Thurman Thomas, Tony Dorsett, Vinny Testaverde, Brian Leach. It's more more people than I can mention in the course of a four-hour show. Uh, that's a pretty big deal, isn't it, this National Sports Collectors Convention? Huge deal. Huge deal. Um, I collect a little bit of memorabilia, but, you know, a little bit here and there. So Steve Larkin's in town. I grew up, believe it or not, as a Seahawks fan. So this is the first time I get to go get his autograph. But, you know, Bo Jackson's going to be there. David Ortiz, Juliana, Dan Marino. It's an incredible list. Uh, if you're a boxing fan, Floyd Mayweather signing autographs. So I, I think it's this This is a show that rotates back and forth with here in Chicago every couple of years. But to have this type of talent and, and, and brand recognition come into uh, Atlantic City, little small town with 38,000 people, it's only 48 blocks. It's pretty incredible. It's a, it's a tremendous show. If you're into sports collectible all, you've got to be at this event. In terms of, um, you mentioned Atlantic City being only 48 blocks, and to me, that's what's so incredible about it, is that this town packs such a punch in terms of global impact, in spite of being a relatively uh, small geographic area. In your view, what is it that makes Atlantic City so special and so unique? I think it goes back to the natural resources. You know, it's it's, it's the ocean, it's the beach, it's, it's what we have. I think that's where it starts because there's only so much beachfront property. Uh, from there, you know, going back years, uh, Atlantic City was America's favorite playground. For years, we're located within a day's drive of a third of the nation's population and an enormous buying power 
financial income of the people that live in that kind of radius. Um, the, I think the challenge is as great as the ocean and beaches are, it's a dead end. You know, nobody comes from that way. Nobody comes from over the pond. Uh, but it, it, it starts certainly with all your natural resources, but the entertainment, the dining, the nightlife, you know, we're an adult destination. This is, this is a cool party town to come to, uh, whether you, for, for your dining, for your nightlife, for a variety of different entertainment. You look at what Boardwalk Hall, Borgata, um, Tropicana, uh, Hard Rock are bringing in from a talent standpoint, from an event standpoint. It, it's right there with anywhere else in the country. If people, we have a lot of business owners in the South Jersey area listening to us right now. If people want to get involved in with what you're doing at the Greater Atlantic City Chamber, maybe even join, what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah, I appreciate the opportunity for that. Uh, best way is take a peek at our website. Go to uh, acchamber.com. Uh, you can call us at 609-345-4524 or email us at info at acchamber.com. Uh, coming out of this pandemic, we've learned a lot about the business community and we've learned how we had to evolve as an organization. So part of what we're doing is really uh, shying away from doing so many events and, and mm. creating more programming that's related to workforce development, uh, clean and safe initiatives. You're looking at uh, career exploration for area youth, showing them what exists here in Atlantic County. You know, our kids are some of our greatest exports out of the state. We want to make sure that they stay here because this is their home and, and we want to make sure that they have great career opportunities here. What is the relationship like between you guys and the CRDA, the Casino Redevelopment uh, Authority, that uh, seems to be the driving force between a lot of not only the advocacy for Atlantic City, but a lot of the different events that are taking place in Atlantic City throughout the year? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, CRDA has a board seat. We have 60 board members. Uh, they are a board member of ours. Our relationship with them is very good. Uh, we don't agree on everything all the time. A perfect example is is we uh, have been supportive of a piece of legislation that uh, that permits them to use their dollars to enhance transportation from the Atlantic City Airport into Atlantic City. We think that's a good use of their dollars um, to, to make it easier for people to get here. Uh, we don't love uh, the amount of money they spend on large concerts in the summer on the weekends because the occupancy rates are already full. Right. You know, we'd love to see that more in the shoulder seasons or midweek. That's why the air sheet. Um, so they're, 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 we have a very good relationship with CRD. We, we agree to disagree at times, but we try and be as supportive of each other. And that, you know, like other cities, you know, there's there's a fragmentation in Atlantic City with, with smaller business groups and government because there's so many different layers of government in Atlantic City. You have the city, you have the Board of Education, you have CRDA, the state oversight, and we're trying to pull everybody together so we can work collaboratively because I think that the fractious nature of, of a lot of environments is what holds it back from further development. In terms of uh, the challenges that Atlantic City is facing or has faced recently, what are they? Uh, I know that there, everybody's trying to row in the right direction, the casinos, yeah. the business owners, you guys, the CRDA, the politicians. Everybody wants a better Atlantic City. But what does that actually mean, and what are the obstacles to uh, making Atlantic City as great as it can be? You know, we we talk to visitors. That's decades-old question. You know, we years ago there were probably 27, 28 million visitors to Atlantic City, and, and Atlantic City kind of had that monopoly on, on gaming. You know, well, we're not just a game. Everybody knows we have gaming. We have to look at all the other amenities that, that Atlantic City offers. That's why the casinos are investing in all of that. And then you look at the boardwalk. You know, the boardwalk needs replacing at certain points. You know, running the air, everything in the air show, we can't do the boardwalk because there's a gross vehicle weight limit. So you have some infrastructure challenges, repaving 
Atlantic Avenue, uh, clean and safe. You know, we, we have issues that big cities have. Um, you, there's, there's everything, you know, you have some human trafficking, you have some, 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 uh, drug addiction and you have all the services located in Atlantic city. So getting all of your social services to collaborate and, and improve that, uh, is a challenge, but I think long-term in Atlantic city, you've got this enormous, pop, uh, access to, to the nation's population, incredible buying power. Uh, you have the ocean, you have the boardwalk, you have the beaches and you have casino investment. You know, if we can take that, if we can take all that and, and, and streamline it and, and get everybody on the same page, because we're looking and I'm sure you're certainly aware of this is New York's getting gaming in a couple of years. Mm. You know, we certainly look at that as an opportunity for Atlantic City, not necessarily to reinvent itself, but improve um, through a destination. And there's also, you know, from a state perspective, there's these DEP regulations that are pending um, that could really slow down economic development. They're the two probably biggest issues that we're looking at that could uh, slow development in Atlantic City is, is what's the impact that New York could have and, and what are these DEP regulations going to require for building and barrier islands? Uh, they're going to be pretty significant to address climate change. Now, I'm not debating that climate change is a, is a real thing. It absolutely is. It's to what extent do you uh, create regulations um, that the economic development. Uh, talking with Michael Chait from the uh, Greater Atlantic City Chamber of Commerce. Uh, gr- terrific group. If you want to learn more about them, go to their website, acchamber.com. Michael, let me end with the most controversial question that I'm going to ask you, and maybe the only question that it could get you in trouble with your membership. <laughs> if you had to pick, gun to your head, um, if you had to pick your very favorite restaurant in Atlantic City, doesn't matter what cuisine, doesn't matter if it's in a casino or outside of one very favorite restaurant, what is it? White House, White House Sub Shops. I've been going there since I've been a kid. Um, the, the smell of the place, it's, it, it is an iconic institution in Atlantic City. So if, I, if my friends come into town and they're looking to go somewhere, I went to college in Ohio, and, and when they came back, that's the first place I took them. You know, there's other uh, – now that I'm 45 and, and, and I've got a little bit more disposable income, you know, the, the Doherty family, Doc's Oyster House, or Doherty's at Resorts – you can't go wrong with those places. I mean, they're tremendous. Unique experiences at Chef Ola's and Cafe 2825. I mean, they're, they're the places. But the the White House is the place. My friends come into town from all over. They want to go to the White House first. As soon mm. as they land, as soon as they drive in, like, let's go get a cheese to the White House. Yeah, there's certainly no place like it. Where they find that bread is uh, beyond me. Hey, uh, Michael, I hope to see you in my next trip there. I'm going to be there the weekend of July 8th. Hopefully our paths will cross. Absolutely. And, and listen, if you're really interested in coming down for, for the air show, you've got my contact information. Believe Give me. me a buzz. We'd I, love absolute, to have you I absolutely am. Uh, hopefully we can uh, we can do that. Thank you, Michael. Sounds great. You take care. Thank you for having me. Uh, thank you, Michael Chait, Greater Atlantic City Chamber of Commerce. You want to comment on any portion of our conversation? You're welcome to give me a call. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. WABC.
This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. You want to comment on uh, anything we're doing, you can do so, 800-848-WABC. So my friend Flipper, you remember Flipper, she used to produce the uh, Bernie and Sid show. She is a close friend, and uh, she's now a TikTok star. I knew her when she was just a radio producer, and uh, she was you know, on Hannity and uh, John Gambling and uh, Joe and Mika and uh, all these other shows that she's been involved with, Curtis and Kuby. And uh, then, of course, uh, Bernie and Sid. And uh, now she's one of the most watched people on TikTok. She's got millions of followers. And uh, she is just a, a good friend, but I don't work with her anymore. And she doesn't live near me, so I don't get to see her as often as I'd like to. So she sends me an SMS. Uh, so uh, she works also part-time at uh, Newsmax. I, it's a job that I got her, actually. And she's doing a great job there. But um, I... She was coming into town yesterday for the this Newsmax luncheon. Now, I can't be at any luncheon. If any activity involves lunch, then I, I just can't be there, unless it's a Friday. That's the one day that I can maybe soldier on to make it to a, a lunch. But a lunch during the week, forget about it. It's just it's not possible. So I declined um, this invitation. And then she sends me an SMS text message Tuesday around 5 p.m. And she lives on Long Island, and uh, she says, coming into the city tomorrow, meeting Sid before the Newsmax luncheon, if you'd like to join, but I know your hours suck. My response, what time, parenthesis, S, so what times? And she writes, I'm taking the 8.55, gets in at 10.05, and then meeting Sid, I guess like 10.15-ish, and then meeting author, I, oh, uh, okay. Meeting author at like eleven fifteen because Sid only has a few minutes. Are you able to make any of those times? So I said, a.m. or p.m. Because if she's meeting someone at ten o five p.m., then I could stop by. I could come and hang out with her for an hour or so. Great. And she says, I don't do p.m. And I said, Ah, no way, no way. I could stick around that late. I said, uh, I said, I know. And then she said, uh, she said, I know. And then I said, enjoy Sid, though. So I get another SMS text message yesterday, 11.05 in the morning. Sid was MIA. Hmm. Where was Sid? I don't know what happened to him, so I took a later train. I'm meeting Arthur at Megan's. Megan's is a bar in Midtown. We'll miss you. And now, and then she sends me a photograph, and I'm sleeping at this text. Um, she sends me a photograph at 12.49 p.m. of her and my friend Arthur Idala at a bar, both of them having a drink. And now I see in that initial text, she wasn't trying to say author, m- meeting author at 11.15. She was trying to say Arthur. I said, oh, that's nice. I received this at 3.30 after I've woken up. I'm envious. She writes, we missed you. And then um, I see she goes, I guess, to the Newsmax luncheon, and she's hanging around with my buddy, John Tobacco. So uh, she tweets, great seeing my pals today, known these guys forever, and then she tags Arthur Idala and John Tobacco. Now, John Tobacco on Twitter t- responds, you got, you got some cool friends, laughing face, laughing face, we missed the coolest of all, Frank Morano. And uh, that was very kind of him to say. And it does look like they were having a lot of fun, and I would have loved to have seen all three of them. I mean, if you gave me um, 
any of the three of these people and said I could hang out with them for a full day, I would consider that a bonus because any of the three, let alone all three of them in the same place at the same time, any of the three is one of the most fun people that you could ever hope to hang out with. But then I got to thinking. I said, you know, if I would have went to this thing, I would have been either exhausted or um, I would have been somehow disheveled, maybe not dressed well, or somehow a dis- not as quick-witted as people remember me. Somehow I would have been a disappointment to everyone that was hoping to interact with me at this uh, at this Newsmax luncheon or even the pre-social pre-luncheon socializing. And yet the fact that I didn't go led the legend of my social status to grow even more. Friday evening, my friend Lauren is having a big party Friday night here in Manhattan. I can't go to that because I have to go to a rehearsal dinner for a wedding that I am uh, officiating on Saturday. Happy to be there. Looking forward to being there. But all day long, people have been asking me about this party. Hey, am I going to see you Friday? Hey, isn't that going to be a great party Friday? Now, I'm not going to be able to go to that party on Friday. And I have a feeling the same thing is going to happen. Whereas my absence is only going to add to the legend of how fun I am to hang out with. And in some ways, you know, it's funny. When the Curtis and Kuby show got canceled in um, December of 2007, Curtis started having secret meetings um, in the fall of 2013 with the management here at this radio station about coming back to WABC. And Kuby... He was not allowed to have those meetings, right? Total violation of his contract with the station that we were working with at the time. And Ron Kuby called me. And this is six years after the show was canceled. He called me. And he said, uh, I don't think I'm allowed to talk with Curtis yet, but I'll talk to you. And um, we'll talk, tell you, you know, obviously we all knew what was trying to happen. They were trying to get this band back together. And uh, Ron said to me, and he was right about this. He said, "All I, everywhere I go, people ask me about the Curtis and Kuby show and talk about how much they miss it and how great it was. And I said, yeah, the same thing happens to me. And Ron said, it's funny. People have a memory of this show being so much better than it actually was. He said, I remember this show. It was pretty good. But for some reason, the fact that it's been off the air for six years has added to this mystique and to this legend of how great it was. And I said, Ron, you're right. Same thing is happening to me. And sure enough, you know, um, when they came back and were reunited, you know, they were on for three years and they had a decent second run. But people realized, you know, it's just a radio show. It's not the greatest thing ever. And it's funny, with Brando and Warren Beatty doing so few movies towards the end of their career... The legend, their legend as an actor only grew. I have to tell you, I think this is going to be my new move. I am now going to try and say no to everything. I am going to turn down every social invitation so that when I do finally randomly show up somewhere like Bill Murray, people are going to think it's that they've won the lotto. So that's my new game plan. I'm going to go out of my way to turn down social invites no matter what the circumstances. 
Until next hour, your influence counts. So use it. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. $1,000 minute coming up in about a half hour. Brian Kilmeade right after that. Find out what's coming up on uh, Fox and Friends this morning. And a bunch of other things that I want to ask him about, including the situation in Ukraine. Namely, you know what I'm going to ask him? Can you really still call Ukraine a democracy? I don't think so. They just banned the world's largest, not the world, but they just banned their largest opposition party. I mean... It's fine if you want to give money to Zelensky and sanction Zelensky's enemies and side with him in this invasion from Russia. Okay, but stop calling it a democracy. We'll see if Brian disagrees. I suspect that he might. I tell you, I am a big believer in democracy. I have spent a lot of time looking at some of the best democratic forms of government in the world and in the history of the world. And a form of government that I just love has been on this continent for over 300 years. And it's in New England, and it is the town hall meeting. There are a whole bunch of towns in New England that are governed by town hall meeting, and they meet And every person gets an equal vote. Every person can say whatever they want. All things are equal. No special interests playing a role there. It's really great. And I think I've always sought to incorporate some elements of that town hall meeting on a broader scale. Maybe digital town hall meetings or something along those lines. But it was an interesting situation in Nantucket. Nantucket, Massachusetts a community that is probably best known for its limericks, had an interesting town hall meeting in May, town meeting. Nantucket, which is an island, very hoity-toity, islanders debated a lot of humdrum topics, such as fertilizer, solar panels, short-term rentals, and the right to carry small plastic containers of alcohol. Or nips, they call it. And then there was day two of the town meeting. And there's a big article about this in the Wall Street Journal yesterday. Whenever. Yeah. Yeah, yesterday. Day two. Nips, these little small plastic containers of alcohol, were banned by an overwhelming majority. 
And then the group moved on to a spicier topic. A citizen article proposing topless beaches. The moderator and the an attorney who was moderating the meeting, Sarah Alger, said, zipping right along from nips to nipples. Dorothy Stover, is, who I've, I've put on our list of people to invite on this show, she is a sex educator and seventh-generation Nantucketer. She's practically a, a walking limerick. She pitched her citizen article to the community. In order to promote equality for all persons, this is what she said, any person shall be allowed to be topless on any public or private beach within the town of Nantucket. After an uproarious deliberation that pitted traditionalists against progressive town people, both young and old, the article passed 327 to 242. So now the article must be approved by the Massachusetts Attorney General before it can be enacted. And some on the island are already blushing a shade brighter than the Nantucket red of their rumpled chinos at the prospect. That's the, the that prose, by the way, is from the Wall Street Journal's Rory Satran. I don't want to take credit for that clever turn of phrase. So on an island with a historic district that carefully patrols its fence heights and its paint colors, topless beaches are unimaginable for some people, including the people that live there year-round, or just the weekenders who gather to picnic with their extended families on the beach. One person, Matt Tara, who's an investor uh, based in Boston and Nantucket, he spoke out about this proposal at the meeting, citing the architectural parallels. He said, we talk about preservation. We talk about making sure that we... That the shingles are the right gray. We talk about the right colors on our doors, yet we're going to pass something that would cause undue attraction to this island for the very wrong, for the wrong reasons. Now, Eve Messing, who's one of the proponents of this article, retorted, I don't like to be compared to a shingle. My breasts are not shingles. She was one of multiple people spanning several generations who defended the article at the meeting. Another was a woman who said, Nantucket women women have always practiced equality. It might be time to go out and buy some stock in banana boat sunscreen. So this was very heated, but ultimately the townspeople decided to adopt it. And now it's going to be up to the attorney general. So I'm curious what you think about this. Uh, the idea of topless beaches to begin with, 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-WABC. And two, even if you would have voted no if you lived in this community, now that the town, through a fair Democratic vote, has voted to adopt this, don't you think the Massachusetts Attorney General should simply rubber stamp this at some point, shouldn't localities, and I've always said this about New York, when you know, when there's always a battle between New York City and Albany about how to make changes about our, our systems of government here, whether it's about education or anything else, shouldn't localities be able to determine for themselves 
what they want to do in their own community, including whether or not they want topless beaches. And lastly, I do not understand, still in this day and age, why it's such a big deal to see a woman topless. I I cannot understand why some people get so uptight about nudity in general, but uh, a, a woman's breasts specifically. Half of the world, half of the world population has breasts, and the other half of the population has probably seen them, and for a substantial portion of them, probably as a child, even suckled on them for nourishment. So why then is this always such a controversial topic? Now, in the Nantucket situation, if you want to weigh in on, on that any which way, 800-848-WABC. In the Nantucket situation, fully nude beaches are not on the table. Um, however, Ms. Stover, who wrote this Citizen article, was careful to delineate between full nudity and toplessness. Uh, she first had the idea for her proposal when she saw a comic that showed a man and a woman, both topless with similar bodies, with the man telling the woman she was indecent, and that felt unfair to her. So that's why she proposed this. In this sense, the Citizen article is in line with the Top Freedom Movement, which aims for women to be able to be topless in the same places that men are. In the U.S., laws on toplessness are currently very patchy, and they're being challenged in different regions. A 2019 federal court ruling essentially made it legal for women to go topless in the same places as men in Utah, Colorado, Wyoming, New Mexico, Kansas, and Oklahoma. So as it stands now, uh, Massachusetts, uh, the attorney general, has 90 days to rule on Nantucket's bylaw. Ms. Stover, the author of the article, said that she has received more support for it than she expected, and she embraced the dissent as a healthy part of democracy. Absolutely. Quote to the Wall Street Journal, I definitely had a few people even close to me that said that they didn't agree with it, which is beautiful, right? That's democracy. That's being humans together and knowing that we're not going to agree. Amen. But now that Nantucket, through the town meeting form of government, has voted to adopt this, shouldn't it be, shouldn't it just be a formality for the attorney general to rubber stamp it? What do you think? And would you want this at a beach community where you live? Maybe it's Atlantic City. Maybe it's Cape May. Maybe it's Long Beach Island. Whatever. And whatever. Maybe it's uh, I know Delaware has a beach community. I know out in Long Island there's the Hamptons. What's the big deal about a, a giving a woman the option to be topless? You don't have to be topless. It's an option. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. Let me begin with John in Melville. Hello, John. John. All right. John has uh, other priorities. 800-848-9222. Ray in New Jersey has been holding a while. Hello, Ray. How you doing, Frank? Um, I want to switch gears a little about... Ray, I, I lost you there. Thanks, Ray. Uh, might be having a, a bit of a phone problem, but you can go ahead and uh, do your best to try and uh, and, call, and call in. 800-848-WABC. One other item I did want to bring to your attention as uh, the calls queue up on the beach issue is The Hustle, which is a great newsletter that I read, 
has an interesting article um, in part based on a Bloomberg article about public restrooms. Where are all the public restrooms? Now, there's nothing worse than needing to hold it in. However, your chance of finding a public restroom in many American cities has been falling for years. And uh, some recent news suggests that it could get worse. Starbucks, which opened their restrooms to non-paying customers uh, four years ago, may be reversing this policy, according to Bloomberg. Starbucks is not the first private establishment to be known for its lavatory. The U.S. has a long legacy of businesses using restrooms as a selling point. The saloons, which were one of the most reliable places for men to relieve themselves in the 19th centuries as long as they bought a pint. Department stores, which made clean restrooms for women a selling point in the late 19th century after realizing that there were few facilities dedicated to women. Gas stations, which became a popular restroom destination with the advent of the automobile. But it raises a question. Why do we rely on private businesses for restrooms in the first place? Now, public restrooms, meaning not stores or restaurants and stuff, because it's nothing. That happened to me last Friday. I was driving home. I got caught in all this traffic, and I really had to use the restroom. So I pulled over to this diner that I knew, and I, you know, I feel bad using the restroom and not buying anything, but I didn't want anything. So I walk in, and if somebody said to me I, that I had to buy something, I would have bought something because I really had to go. I used the restroom, and then I, because I knew where the restroom was in this particular diner, and then I, I walk out. But it can be very, um, you know, it can be a little uncomfortable. Why aren't there more public restrooms? So there was a restroom boom in the early 20th century, due in part to prohibition, as some feared that shutting down all these saloons would result in a toilet shortage. But there were a whole bunch of factors that slowed this momentum down. High costs. Early 20th century public restrooms, or comfort stations, were built with high ceilings and ornate tiles to give the image of high sanitation standards, but it also made it expensive for upkeep. Suburban flight. As Americans left cities for the suburbs after World War II, the focus shifted to highway rest stops. And then there's safety concerns. This was big in the 60s and 70s. Public restrooms became known for violence and drug use, leading a lot of cities to shut off access. So what now? So Starbucks, at least for the time being, is still a viable option. You just have to you may have to just purchase something if they go back to that. So the Portland Loo, which is based in Oregon, is an affordable single user public toilet designed to deter crime. It's also been installed in Denver, Cincinnati, and San Antonio. Now, for those of us that live in New York City, there's a TikTok account run by a gentleman named Teddy Siegel, a, general, a woman named Teddy Siegel, excuse me, who reviews free bathrooms here in the Big Apple so you know where to go when you got to go. There's a little bit of what you see, you'll see if you follow Teddy Siegel's TikTok account. 
already discussed the best bathrooms to cry in in New York City, so now let's go over the best bathrooms to have mental breakdowns in. And yes, those are two different things. Starting off with Bergdorf Goodman on Fifth Avenue, they have reed diffusers lined on the counters, so at least it will smell nice while you're having your panic attack. And there's also a little room to sit in before you enter the bathroom, so that's a good place to cool off before you go out into society again. Next, we have the Chelsea Market bathroom. Their bathroom's amazing for anyone who hasn't been there. Highly recommend. Also, nothing makes me feel better like eating so maybe that's not the best thing but at least you have that as an option once you're done freaking out next the new york public library and yes the one near bryant park i'm not suggesting the bryant park bathroom for this one because unlike crying mental breakdowns cannot be done in public and the line to get into the bryant park bathroom can be too long sometimes next we have the apple store on fifth it's right across the street from bergdorf's but it's nice because it's open 24 7 so it will be there for you no matter what time of day that you're having your mental breakdown Next, we have the Aritzia and Soho. They have floor-to-ceiling doors on each of the stalls in the gender-neutral bathroom there, so no one will be able to look under and see your shoes to be able to tell who's in there having the mental breakdown. We love that. Next, we have the Little Island bathroom. Highly recommend this for a place to have a mental breakdown for those with a flair for the dramatics because they have amazing acoustics, so you'll be able to like hear your sobs echoing throughout this cave. I like it. Next, we have the Home Depot and Flatiron. Their bathroom's nothing special, but I recommend this one because there's just something calming about being in Home Depot. You can go and look at some nice plants or, like, hammers. I don't know. I, I, th I think it's calming, though. Next, we have the American Girl Doll Store. This bathroom's located in the basement, and it's usually pretty empty. They also have little holders in each of the stalls for your dolls, so you can bring in a doll and cry to it if that makes you feel better. I don't know. And as per usual, these facts were brought to you by an expert on mental breakdowns and public bathrooms, me. So that's nice uh, that she's doing that as a public service. But uh, we are at a uh, we are at a bathroom inflection point or I guess um, I guess some people may say we're at a bathroom influshment point. Right. 800-848-9222 if you want to comment on either the public restroom shortage or this push in Nantucket for topless beaches and the fact that this will now need to be approved by the Massachusetts Attorney General. Let me begin with Adrian on the Upper West Side. Hello, Adrian. Hi. I'm all for the topless beaches. I think it's healthy. Uh, many of my ancestors in Italy, uh, this was a, it's not a big, wasn't a big deal. I don't know if these days people do it on the beaches there, but I think it's very healthy. Adrian? Sorry, I lost you for a second. Go ahead. It's very helpful, you said? I think it's healthy. I think it's healthy. healthier. Healthy, yeah. You get vitamin D. It's, uh, it, and I don't know why there should be a difference. I mean, why, if men are allowed to go topless, why not women? If I think some of the pushback might be that uh, maybe some women might feel that their boyfriends or husbands will be ogling the girls or something. Maybe that's it or something. I don't know. But I can't understand why a, a woman wouldn't. You know, I don't feel threatened if some gal is topless. I mean, it's just, just breasts. It's not. Exactly. I see pantless men on the Upper West Side at least once a week, and nobody seems to be doing anything about that. So yeah, I, 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 I can't understand why people get so crazy about this stuff and so uptight. Well said, Adrian. Uh, we are 100% in agreement. 800-848-9222. Adrian coming to a topless beach near you. Uh, be on the lookout. Mike is in the Poconos. Hello, Mike. Hey, good morning, Frank. I woke up early today. Excellent. Um, I was hoping you'd say it's that. It's funny. Yeah, man. You know, the hoity-toity Nantucket, uh, I, I like to quote that one lady said, hey, 
don't judge me as a shingle. Judge me as a woman. I can uh, take my top off and sunbathe anytime I want. Why not? It's, it's, you know, it's going on all over the world, all over the country. But Nantucket, you know, they got to they loosen up their, uh, you know, their, their mindset. I mean, come on. Let them be uh, as free as they want to, laying on the beach without a top. You know, very simple. Yeah, amen, Mike. Amen. Couldn't agree with you more. And, look, whether I agree with Mike and Adrian or not, this is what the people of Nantucket voted to do. So, in my view, the Massachusetts Attorney General should not be a potential stumbling block. The Attorney General's office, I think, should just rubber stamp this, and that should be that. 800-848-9222. Would you want this in your community, though? Uh, 800-848-WABC. Larry is in Brooklyn. Hello, Larry. Yeah, hi. Um, on this subject, I started talking about Nantucket as, as you like these town hall meetings, uh, in, inferring that they're an icon of the democratic process. I'm not really that knowledgeable about it, but I would just I would just comment and say that if it's a simple majority vote, then you're really uh, alienating uh, a very sizable minority because in, you know in all the legislature's process, it's always two thirds. And well, no, and no, and no, no, it's not. I mean, you can pass a bill in either Congress or the state legislature that only requires a majority vote. You need a two thirds vote to override a veto. No, what I mean is it's a majority vote of the legislatures, but that represents – that usually represents more than just simply a majority. I'm not sure about this, of the people. You know, I'm talking about of the, of the actual people. Sure. You know? Okay. I'm not sure. But the point of the matter is is that just like the marijuana law in New York, I mean, that, thing, that seems to have gotten passed somehow, but there's a lot of people that are that are being disenfranchised by that I mean, the, the streets to me stink, basically. Now, I don't really have anything against topless women, but there's a lot of people that may have moral hangups about it. And I don't think that they should be disenfranchised by a simple majority. Well, I mean, but what's the what's the alternative to have the majority disenfranchised by the simple minority? No, there should be there should be um, uh, like a, it, should ha- it should have to be a sizable majority, like two thirds or three quarters, because you have to take stock of the people on the other side that are going to be upset. If you, in other words, the status quo has something to say, a lot to say about it. People, you know, the status quo is the status quo for a reason. In other words, these things didn't come for, in the past. So to change the status quo, you really have to have a sizable. I think, uh, vote, basically. Yeah, well, I I hear that, Larry. And um, uh, that's always, I guess, the argument uh, when we talk about direct democracy and town hall meeting local government in general. In New England, I think town meeting government has worked well since colonial times. It's worked well in some Western states since at least the late 19th century. And uh, I, I think I like this. I like this a lot. I like empowering regular people. And um, there are a lot of different variations of it. I think Connecticut does it a little bit different than Massachusetts does it. I think Maine does it a little bit different than Connecticut does it. But the idea is still the same. It's giving everyday people a voice in how government works in their community. I think that's a healthy thing. Uh, Tom is in the Bronx. Hello, Tom. Hey, what's happening? Uh, Look, on the beach thing, I mean, a secluded part of the beach, especially for the kids, that's not out of the question. I'm quite sure they can do that. And for the port, port of
outside. They need to have that or have a designated indoor place where people have to pay a little something, 50 cent or something to use the bathroom. But, you know, that's the way to um, have bathrooms, you know, all over the place. And people got to pay for them, so they making a little money. So, uh, you know what I'm saying? I think that's a win-win um, for that. And uh, just a secluded part for the nudity. Okay. All right. Well, you know, it, it is what it is, Tom. I, again, I just don't see why get, people get so worked up on the issue of, of nudity, uh, as far as I'm concerned. All right. Ray in New Jersey, we're going to try him again. Hello, Ray. How you doing, Frank? Can you hear me now? Yeah, go ahead, Ray. All right. Yeah, just to switch gears, I was talking about um, I had two kids. I had kids late in life. I don't know if you can uh, still on that topic. But, uh, how, how late? But, uh I had my first son, I was 56, and I turned 57 11 days after he was born. And then I had my daughter when I was 61. And, well, but I did run four marathons right after my son was born, in the, four, four years, the next four years, New York City Marathon. But there is a big difference between 57 or 61 and 83, isn't there? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But hey, listen, it's not that I hey, listen. I'm a regular blue collar guy. I don't I'm not rich and it's going to be a tough go, but I wouldn't change it for the world. Well, that's great. Uh, that's wonderful, Ray. I appreciate you, you know, sharing that and uh, keep running those marathons. Hey, if you want to win a thousand dollars, whether you want to use that for child rearing expenses or something else, you can be the seventh caller right now to one eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. That's one eight hundred eight four eight W.A.B.C. And if you are the seventh caller, then you're going to get to answer 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds. If you can answer them correctly, then you will be $1,000 richer. Brian Kilmeade joins me uh, in just a minute as well. So go ahead and call right now. Be the seventh caller to 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. WABC. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano, 77 WABC. side of midnight uh, i'm frank moreno thank you for listening to our little program uh, it is that time for us to give an opportunity to a lucky lucky person to win a little bit of money it is time for the other side of midnight presents it's the thousand dollar minute Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank Murano. And we are going to talk with the great Brian Kilmeade in just a moment as well, the star of radio, television, and the printed page. But first, let's say hello to Teresa here in New York. Hello, Teresa. Hi, Frank. How are you? I'm great. I'm great. Thanks for uh, thanks for listening. Thanks for playing our little game. You familiar with this uh, this uh, this contest, Teresa? Yes, I've played once before, and I choked. So oh, what, do you remember the question you got wrong? Yeah, well, I'll never forget. 
What's the capital of Connecticut? Uh, now do you know it? Uh, Hartford. See, see now now it's uh, that that's the best way to learn. All right. Uh, let's get started since you know the rules. Um, the timer will begin after I ask the first question. Name a blood type. Hey. What film is Jurassic World Dominion a sequel to? Jurassic Park. How many amendments are in the Constitution's Bill of Rights? 46. No, no, I'm sorry. It's it's 10. <laughs> Ten is the first ten I, amendments to the Constitution. It's a Bill of Rights. Freedom the First oh, Amendment, God. you got freedom of speech. You got the Second Amendment, you got the right to bear arms. Uh you know, you got uh you know the Third Amendment, which people don't pay that much attention to. Fourth Amendment is search and seizure without warrant. Um, you know, the third amendment has to do with uh, a soldier being quartered in people's. Head. All right, Teresa. Well, I'm sorry you didn't win, but I'm going to put you on hold and we're going to let um we're going to have you give your your contact information to Izzy. And uh you will get a complimentary the other side of midnight t-shirt, okay? All right, Teresa. Hang on. I'm sorry you didn't win. Teresa seems like a a nice lady. So Izzy, I'm not Izzy. Uh uh, Avery, if you wouldn't mind picking up uh, Teresa and uh, getting her information. Uh, we're having a little bit of a phone problem, so we lost Brian Kilmeade, uh, but we're going to try and reconnect with him in just a minute. A lot that I was going, you know, I made last week, I made all sorts of notes about Ukraine that I was going to bring up with Brian Kilmeade, but now I can't seem to find them. I hope I saved those notes. I don't see why I would have, uh, why I would have not saved them. But, uh, I mean, it is what it is. If we if we can't get it, we can't get it. But um, there's certainly a lot of other interesting things to talk about with Brian Kilmeade, who is not only on the radio every day from uh, 10 a.m. to noon right here on WABC, but he is the host of Fox and & Friends and a New York Times bestselling author. And now he's doing another show on uh, the Fox News Channel on the weekend, which is not only doing great in the ratings, but it's doing a kind of a lot of original, very unique content that uh, is getting rave reviews from uh, all sorts of folks. I think we have Brian with us. Brian, thanks so much for uh, joining us on the radio once again. No problem, Frank. Thanks for the invitation. Uh, Brian, so you are, I consider you something of, a, of an expert on the subject of, of fatherhood and parenting. A little earlier, we were talking about this story out of uh, Argentina of a fella that is having a child, a baby, while he's 83. His wife's 35. And it led to a whole discussion about what age is too old for a, a father or a parent in general to have a child. Do you have an opinion on this one? I don't know. Uh, I didn't. Uh, Tony Randall have one at about seventy-eight years old. I guess he wasn't around too long. I think he died a few years later. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know what science is doing now. I mean, I, I assume people are making their own decisions. Uh, you know, we usually have debates about should seventeen-year-olds or eighteen-year-olds right. be parents, right. Right. but now eighty-three. Uh, I guess wisdom. I mean, if the guy's guy's probably only going to live ten more years, so um, it, it depends. I mean, is he one of these guys that? 
They can move around and do things. I see a lot of 83 years old that are basically uh, chair-bound. Right. He seems pretty spry, but as you said, you know, is he going to be around to see this kid, um, you know, go into high school? And and that's, I think, in some respects, sort of unfair, you know, to a a child. So I'm just curious as to your take on that. But, uh, you know, it is what it is. Hey, um, there was primary day in uh, Virginia, and uh, Fox did some great coverage of of the primaries on Tuesday. You were joined by... By the new governor of Virginia, Glenn Youngkin, on primary day, uh, give me give me your take on the the key takeaways from the uh, the elections in general on Tuesday, including in Virginia. Well, let me just tell you, the people of Virginia love Glenn Youngkin. I went to about four events with him. Some of you know, there's scripted events, Frank, and there's unscripted events. Like you walk into a supermarket, you have no idea who's in that supermarket. I mean, he's got he's going to sign a budget, and. him as a rock star. So this is the this is the uh, the guy from a Carlisle group who does, you know, who had helped candidates in the past at you know fifty five years old. Today. I'm going to run for governor, and he shocked the world by winning there. So he's extremely popular. And then you look what happened in a lot of these districts, these swing districts. Uh, they're they're really pushing for these Republicans and their minorities. There's the one thing they've done is gone out of their way to recruit qualified minority candidates. And it's really shaking up Democrats who want to label Republicans the white supremacist party. It just doesn't work. And you're seeing that in places like Virginia and a lot of people in urban environments. I'm looking at the numbers in New York. Yeah. Brian, I'm not sure if you can hear me. We're, we're losing you uh, a little bit. Uh, we're having a, a right. little. OK, uh, no, I got you now. Uh, but it, speaking of New York, I think that's what a lot of folks were hoping with Harry Wilson's candidacy for governor is that he could sort of emulate that Glenn Youngkin model. But it doesn't look like Wilson's gaining much traction with New York primary voters. But who knows? Maybe uh, maybe I'll be wrong about that. Do you think this Youngkin model in Virginia where he doesn't necessarily run as an avowed Trumpist, but he doesn't run away from Trump either? Uh, do you think that's a model that could work for Republican candidates in different purple states around the country. It absolutely has to be. Uh, so I, I would think that the Yunkin plan is now used by Dr. Oz. Mm. Dr. Oz got the nomination because he's with for Trump, but now he's taken a lot of the Trump uh, artwork off his website. Why? Because, you know, uh, people listening to us right now might say, we love Trump, but it's, those are not the people that are going to put Republicans in office. It's going to be the independent. some reason right now the way Trump is still currently situated he alienates them but he but the people that love him love him more than ever uh January 6th and all but that's not going to get you elected so what you do is you can't get elected if Trump if being an anti-trumper mm. but you can't also get a nomination uh being purely all Trump being purely all um make America great again Don Jr and Don Sr Outside the the red states of Oklahoma, of Alabama, of uh, it used to be Georgia, now I think Florida. So I think you got to walk that line, and I think President Trump understands that. I think he understands to be successful. A lot of times, you got to run by yourself. You know, you got to say, "Yeah, look at what Tim Ryan's doing." Tim Ryan's trying to pretend he's a Republican. He does not want a Democrat to, to even endorse him. <laughs> So, you know, in a way, it's putting the wool over people's eyes, but because Dr. Oz is a uh, a disciple of Donald Trump, there's no question about it. 
Uh, we're talking with Brian Kilmeade, a New York Times bestselling author, a co-host of Fox and Friends every morning on the Fox News Channel, and uh, a radio talk show host heard nationally, including right here on WABC from 10 a.m. to noon. And uh, he's also on the weekends at uh, 8 p.m. on the Fox News Channel as well. Hey, Brian, we saw some news out of the... Uh, we lost Brian there. Uh, it looks like we're having a, a phone problem. So, uh, you know, if we can get Brian back, uh, that's great. If not, we'll uh, we'll chat with Brian again next week and uh, we'll see what the what the story is there. And it gives me another week to try and find and refine my Ukrainian question. Uh, but Brian does do a, a terrific job on both radio and on uh, on television on a regular basis. By the way, you want to email me, you can do so at frank.morano at wabcradio.com. That's frank.morano at wabcradio.com. And uh, you can also find me on Twitter at Frank Morano. That's Frank, M-O-R-A-N-O. And uh, I will always enjoy hearing from you and your correspondence. I uh, check each and every email, no matter how critical it might be at times. Uh, By the way, tomorrow, as I mentioned, uh, we're going to be joined by the author of this new book about uh, Jimmy Burke, this uh, police chief that went to jail out in Suffolk County. And uh, we're also going to be joined by Julian Assange's brother. So that should be uh, that should be very interesting. Try again. Brian, I'm sorry about that uh, phone connection there. I hope we got you back. Yeah, I mean, now I'm on a cell. I was on a hard line for like it was 1975. So, I mean, I was on a line that has never in in, in my world has ever hurt a talk radio show. I, I, uh, so I now have, I'm on a cell. I have a feeling it's Verizon servicing of our phone line, not the uh, not the phone itself. Hey, uh, what I was going to ask you about, there was this big deal for bipartisan gun legislation out of the U.S. Senate this week. You know, we've seen big bipartisan reform movements before. We saw it uh, on tax reform where Bill Bradley partnered with Ronald Reagan and that whole crowd. We've seen it time and again. And I'm wondering, in an era where it seems like Democrats and Republicans can't even agree on what day it is, irrespective of the strengths and the demerits of this particular legislation, do you think what they've hammered out in terms of this bipartisan gun bill could be a model for legislation going forward? I, you know, listen, from what I've read of it, I haven't seen all 80 pages, but I have been in contact with Senator Cornyn. And and what he does, this is – and I've, I've listened to uh, Senator Murphy at length, who's obviously a liberal Democrat from Connecticut. And what this is is funding for schools, funding for mental health. There's no – an 18-year-old can still get what they want. They're going to take 10 days and look at his or her background. They're going to make sure with the state police – uh, has this been a problem? You know, is uh, Billy Jones down the block wants to get a gun? Has he been a problem? And the answer in Buffalo, the shooter would have been yes. This guy was brought in for examination. And looking at his school, the answer would have been yes. He has been suicidal. They thought he was a danger to himself and to others. And the, and the same thing in Uvalde. They looked into the guy's background. At 17, everybody knows he's going to be a school shooter. They just thought he was going to shoot up the high school. Mm. So when he goes to buy a gun, his sister says, no, I'm not buying a gun for you. You've got to wait till you're 18. He turns 18 and gets it. They run the background check. Nothing's there. Now for 10 days, they're going to, these gun owners, uh, I believe, have to make the calls to state police, to the school the kid goes to and say, is this guy a problem? Now, if I'm a gun shop owner, I'm not upset by that. I don't want blood on my hands. I don't want to sell, sell to some lunatic that becomes the next Columbine killer or the Uvalde assassin. So I'm not against it. 
almost every Republican outside Lindsey Graham and maybe nine others and Senator Cornyn seem to be against it. Senator uh, Joni Ernst seems to be with it. Now, what we worry about is the red flag laws. People listening to us, Frank, in Suffolk County have not very few complaints that you might get some after and I might get some today about the red flag law. So I'm, I'm in a, a horrible relationship. I threaten my spouse or my ex-spouse or and and you come over and you can't take you, you call the cost cost goes my hands are tied. Now they would say, OK, uh, we're listen, uh, we're going to take your gun until we can get to the bottom of this. And we find out you're a threat that might uh, that uh, on the surface seems fine. But if I dislike you and I dislike guns, if I call the police on Frank Morano, who just because I happen to not like guns, are you going to have your guns taken right. away while we investigate and you've done nothing? So it's all the implementation of the red flag law is we we have to be uh, we have to be assuaged that this is not going to be used to take everybody's gun. So a totally unrelated, uh, but uh, uh, on a very sad note, uh, we lost a uh, legendary football player and uh, TV personality, Tony Siragusa. Uh, people that are NFL fans may remember him from his time with the Colts or the Ravens. People that are fans of uh, shows like The Sopranos may uh, remember him from his recurring role as sort of a heavy on that show. Uh, people that just like good television might remember his work as a as an analyst. You got to meet and uh, and speak with Tony Siragusa several times. Uh, passed away at the age of only uh, 55. Uh, give me your take on uh, Tony Siragusa as a person, as an athlete, and sort of a personality? Greatest. Uh, I talked to him last week, and, you know, he had left the restaurant business. I was going to have him on to talk about the restaurant business two weeks ago, and then he called me back last week, and he said, no, Brian, I gave it up. I sold them all, and, I'm, I mean, you know, he's doing private jets, moved down to Florida with his family, quality of life. He's got three kids, 55 years old, uh, unbelievable personality as a player, I have this one anecdote, and I've covered the 20, 25 Super Bowls. So it's a, in 2000, I'm covering the Giants against the Ravens. It was the year right before the 9-11 attack, so, so before when everything changed, uh, when you really had some access to go in and out. Security wasn't high. And at the end of the game, uh, they just put the lines up, and they said, press is going to meet in the press room. And Tony Siragusa waved our crew through because we had on him on during the week. He, he loved Fox. And he said, no, no, wave these guys through. So he gave me access to the entire Ravens team. Wow. And we stayed in touch since. And then he became this Fox personality. And then he went on, was on The Sopranos for a while. And then he went into full board business. And he's just a, he was a big conservative and just a, a red, white, and blue guy. And I guess he told Howard Stern a few years ago that, he's, that he was worried that his dad died in his 40s from a heart attack. And he was over 300 pounds. Uh, mostly muscle, and uh, maybe that was it. He died in his sleep, but man, there was no indication this guy was hurting mm. at all. Mm. Uh, uh, now that's sad. And uh, again, I, I don't think I ever got to meet him, but he seems like a great guy, and I certainly enjoyed him a great deal as a, as an athlete and as a personality. And uh, you know, especially with uh, with kids like that, it's uh, sorry to New sorry Jersey to see guy. that. Yeah, no, it's a it's a somebody that uh, really embodied the best spirits of uh, what it means to be a Jersey guy as well. Um, uh, in terms of Washington, let me get your take on what's happening there. Uh, there's been a lot of attention paid to what's happening on the inflation front. In fact, uh, yesterday, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, Jerome Powell, Powell, was asked by Senator Bill Haggerty 
if President Biden is right and uh, that the reason for all this inflation is Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine, this is what Jerome Powell said. In January of 2021, inflation was at 1.4 percent. By December of 2021, it had risen to 7 percent, a five-fold increase. Now, since the war in Ukraine began in late February, the rate of inflation has risen incrementally, another 1.6 percent to a current level of 8.6%. So again, uh, from 7% to 8.6%. Given how inflation has escalated over the past 18 months, would you say that the war in Ukraine is the primary driver of inflation in America? No, inflation was high before, certainly before the uh, war in Ukraine broke out. Uh, I'm glad to hear you say that. The Biden administration seems to be intent on deflecting blame and as recently as just this past Sunday spread the misinformation that Putin's invasion of Ukraine is the, quote, biggest single driver of inflation. I'm glad you agree with me that that is not the truth. Uh, Jerome Powell just reappointed by President Biden. Were you surprised that he was so plain spoken in terms of uh, basically calling shenanigans on the president's analysis of the inflation situation? Well, yeah, I mean, I'm sure he's hearing it today and he's going to amend it in some way. But Senator Haggerty was 100 percent right. It was a good, solid question, but the numbers don't lie. I mean, you're a numbers guy. If you're a senator, if you're a pal, you spend your life with numbers. You don't spend your life with nuance. And he, he can't lie. I mean, we're all seeing the numbers. Do you know the president yesterday said we're on a war footing? Excuse me. We know what it's like to be on a war footing over the last 20 years. This is not a war footing. We don't have one soldier over there. We're writing checks and sending weapons at a very slow pace. Uh, we're better than the rest of the world, but not quick enough for the, for the Ukrainians. And don't say that Vladimir Putin is doing this. Do you realize we are boosting Putin's prestige? Do you realize we are an easier sell to his, his, whole, his constituents? They say, hey, hey, Russia, suck it up. We are making the, we're making the Americans pay. And guess who's going to pay the price? Ukraine. Now they're going to rally in order to hurt the West and hurt us, all because of Joe Biden's concern that 33 percent approval rating is going to destroy his party, which he is right about. But again, he's sacrificing national security for his own political interests. And by the way, the ruble now at a seven-year high. It is uh, certainly seeing not looking like the sanction strategy that President Biden's been pursuing is uh, is exactly hurting the the Russian ruble. Uh, this is the week, Brian, that uh, looks like we're going to get this abortion decision uh, that uh, was leaked out a couple of months ago. How much of a hurdle do you think this is going to be for Republicans running in blue states, states like New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, for instance? Is this a a problem electorally for the Republicans or is that already baked in? Um, I'm I'm pretty sure it's already baked in. I don't see it being uh, that big of a problem. I think the the most interesting thing that I think that happened with the Republicans – I, I think they're starting just to make a, uh, gains in a lot of places that are traditionally where there are no gains. I mean, you see uh, their state controller over in California is a Republican. Lonnie Chen was on with me yesterday. He's actually winning his race in New York. Uh, Zeldin's got – seems to have a, a legitimate shot. He got an endorsement from the vice president yesterday. So I think that there's uh, – Republicans have a lot going in their direction. I think they're smart to deal with I, – I think this legislation on the surface and its outline on guns even seems positive. What mm. it does do, two things, it takes guns off, I believe, for November. If you do what you do now, uh, the Republicans – the Democrats can't say Republicans once again are letting uh, uh, preschoolers and um, you know uh, elementary school kids uh, be assassinated in school. They don't care about your kids. 
They basically took that off the table because you have all these bipartisan hearings, and they're not putting an age limit. They're not banning uh, AR-15s. They're not putting an age limit on on 18. They're they're really not doing much on your on your Second Amendment rights. So I think that I think that more and more things are pointing to Republicans because Democrats have had a chance to run the run the state and uh, run the country, and they've been an epic fail. Uh, what what can we look forward to on Fox and Friends this morning? Uh, Fox and Friends. My guest list will be Tulsi Gabbard. Give us an idea. The Democrat. Oh, my Bill favorite. She, she, yeah, yeah you, like Bill Maher, she she is uh, a liberal and just does not recognize her party. Uh, Kennedy will be joining us. Uh, we're going to have uh, you know the Robertsons, Duck Dynasty, Jep and uh, Jace Robertson will be on with us. They're hunting for historic gold. Bobby Barack on the commentary with the Colbert Report. I think there's a lot more to this. Uh, on the, what they did in their insurrection, refusing to leave the Capitol, and one of their men uh, getting arrested. What happened to late-night comedy? Bobby Brock from OutKick uh, will be joining us. Uh, so that'll be happening. And, of course, we're going to talk about uh, what's going on at Uvalde, the investigation, the lack of courage from law enforcement, the letting kids get killed and bleed to death while they didn't even try the door that was open and tried to vilify a teacher, tried to say that they uh, confronted the gunman with shots when the video shows if they had gone after the gunman, they could have shot him before he even entered the building. So we'll definitely be uh, discussing that. And also, Donald Trump, is he vulnerable to other Republicans? You had Governor Yunkin, who I spent a day with on Tuesday. And you got Ron DeSantis, mm. who has $100 million from donors, almost unsolicited. Is, uh, are, the, are the Republicans looking to move on for President Trump? So we'll look at those things. Wow. Uh, that sounds like quite a show. How about on the radio front on WABC from 10 to noon? That was it. Uh, well, was so, there we go. We got, I, I meant to say on uh, on the 8 p.m. show, Fox News Saturday night. Uh, you you uh, know, what? the problem with you doing three shows that I have to keep track of <laughs> is I have to keep track of three shows. Right. Uh, you know, Frank, I, I blame you. I blame you. It's not <laughs> my problem. Uh, but no, I mean, right now, I will I will say that we are going to have a, a, that day in the life I'd had with Governor Youngkin. Was he going to run for president? What's he going to do? What does it mean for the party? What does it mean for Virginia, this midterms? Uh, what's his life like as he leaves? He's worth $450 million. Uh, he left that company to donate his salary and basically volunteer uh, as governor of Virginia. So he's going to be joining us. Uh, we're also going to be joined by Harris Faulkner. And um, we're probably going to be diving into this oil and gas situation mm-hmm. and finding what the reality is. Uh, so with that, that show will really take shape today, uh, and then we'll be set to go 8 o'clock on Saturday, repeated at 11. Of course, for WABC listeners, it's all, it's all Eastern time. All right, Brian Kilmeade, uh, we'll be watching you on Fox News, and we'll hear you at 10 a.m. right after Bernie and Sid. Thank you. Congratulations on all your success, Frank. Thanks so much. Likewise. Appreciate it. You want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you could give me a call, 1-800-848-9222. We'll also do 15 seconds of fame in just a minute. 1-800-848-WABC. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. WABC. We are New York on New York's Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano.
We're going to do 15 seconds of fame in just a moment and let you be heard on any subject for 15 seconds. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. But I just want to give a quick update. We have located Carmine's Mr. Met bobblehead doll. That is a follow-up from yesterday. It was in the back of my my wife's vehicle, so I apologize for blaming any family members. This was not a conspiracy theory. It's not a conspiracy. He has not been kidnapped. He is just fine. Meantime, it's time for The Other Side of Midnight. This is 15 Seconds of Fame. Bob in Brooklyn. Mark in New Haven. Gary on Staten Island. How Biden wins in 2024. Repeat over and over again. Russia, Russia, Russia. That's all you got to do. All right. Well, I, I think that's about slams the lid on things for today. I'll be back at 1 a.m. with Ask Frank Anything. Uh, until then, uh, Deb Valentine is next with the early news. Frank Moreno, good day.